BBC Five Live. What on earth was that? It's my fruit drink. <laughs> it's also got some ginger in it. Okay. Have you got a sore throat? No, I just I could. I've, I've been. Are we recording this instantly? This uh, this comedy gold. It is. <laughs> I've been eating hotel breakfasts for the last few days. Simon, so this is okay. the first time I've had health. So okay. This is like a fruit based drink. Right. So are we now going? I'm assuming we are. Yeah. Simon, how's your week been? It's been okay, thanks. What have you been doing? How's your week been? No, my week's been great. What have you been doing? I've been... Where have you been? I've been meeting our listeners. Have you? And how's that been? That's been very good. What's been taking you to meet your listeners? They want to say hello to Jason Isaacs a lot. Do they? Okay, fine. So to everyone who said that to me over the last week, thank you very much. It's been very nice to meet you. Okay. And and, 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 and anything else you've been doing? Anything else been... Mm. How's the Radio 2 show been going? Um, I haven't been doing that. I haven't been doing it. No. Why? Why? Why is that? Simon? I've been out meeting. Been out our meeting listeners. our listeners. So fans of this show. I've been meeting fans of this show. So that's what you've been doing for the yes. weeks. Okay. Nothing else. Nothing. Nothing else. else. You know, I can't no. tell you about. If I, I know that's why I'm enjoying else. asking you. Okay. So nothing else. You've I have literally been just been going else. on a tour. Okay. Of our listeners. Yes. <laughs> that won't get through. I know. Now that now, was beautiful yes. bird song. Wasn't there we go. Now, <laughs> see how I wilted under pressure. There was your a... relentless questioning. I'd be no good as a spy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, literally. Ask him a couple of times and he'll say absolutely yes. <laughs> That's right. Do you remember when Frank Gardner came on the show and reviewed it? We asked him to review a spy film. Uh, and he came on and in his review, he just said everything about the plot, including the ending. So, you know, he was he's very good at... That was Tom seeing... Courtney. No, no, well, he's done that no, as well. Done, no, okay. Uncle Tom Courtney so and what all. Did, what if Frank Gardner reviewed BBC security correspondent? He, yeah, no, I asked, know who Frank Gardner is. Yeah, yeah, we asked him to review a movie which had lots of spies and stuff. Right, and he reviewed it by giving every, uh, telling us the whole thing. In fact, he mentioned it to me the other day. Frank Gardner is a also a, a very successful. Apparently, yes, that's right. Yes, he's he's got. Yeah, he has. I wonder if he tours with them. Do you think he does? Almost certainly. Yeah. He'd be very good too. One of his. Um, he was asking me about this. He was talking about possible, you know, and things. I mean, that must be a thing that happens to that if they and it's you know and it's good. We're not allowed to talk about Frank's. They must. They must start Can't getting. Promote. No, this is all birdsong. Yeah. No, I'm. Why is it birdsong? I'm not. I'm not. We've had more birdsong in the first few minutes of this podcast than we have had for a long time, and it's all your fault. It's not my fault. I haven't said anything that had to be birdsonged, Your Honour. I have I haven't, have I, Robin? There's not Yeah, you see, we can't talk. Oh, sorry, so uh, it's a very confusing world, isn't it? Okay. How was your week? It's great. Did, well know what I did. What did you do? Well well, I don't <laughs> want to know anything if it involves any degree of self promotion or selling things. No, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. What did you do then? On Wednesday Wednesday. Wednesday night, Wednesday evening. I went to Chepstow. Why would I go to Chepstow? Is that where you were in Chepstow? Were you on Chepstow on Wednesday? Were you doing a thing in Chepstow on Wednesday? Moving on. Is that what you were doing? Carry on. Is that why you said Chepstow? Have you like literally it. got that calendar in your head? I just like it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I went to a party to celebrate Nick Lowe's 50 years in show business. God bless him. It was brill. You must have been the most excited person in the world. I was. And, the, the, you know, all around there was, you know, basically people that worked with him and, you know, and, and top journalists and, uh, you know, and, 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 and rock glitterati and all that shit. It was in this tiny place that I've never been to before, this club that apparently, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and everyone, but of course I'd never been there. I couldn't find it. But I was basically there as 
the super fan. I mean, my role was literally just stand there and and just be amazed by everybody. Hasn't he got some new songs coming out? Nick Lowe's always got new songs coming out. But are you more excited the fact that Nick Lowe's got some new songs coming out or the fact that ABBA have got some new songs coming out? I, no, I didn't know the second bit. Have ABBA yes. got new songs coming out? It was out? announced this very day. What, they, new recordings? New recordings. Well, Why did we not start with that? Okay, I'll read you the, I'll read you the thing. When, did, when was this announced? Uh, Friday lunchtime. Today, today lunchtime. From BBC News, thank you for the music. ABBA have produced their first two new songs together since their split in 1982. There you go. Wow. Official BBC News, which we can talk about and promote. And is that for Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again? Presumably that would be the logical explanation. I have no other... And is it all... It's all four members? Yes. Isn't that exciting? My mind is blown. One of the songs is going to be performed by their digital avatars on television, apparently. I I, I know that Robin said it in your ears because I heard it first. Right. Why is that? I've got no idea. I've given you everything that I possibly know about this fact. Okay, my... Oh, wow. Okay, so ABBA have got back together again. Yes, they described it as an extreme, extremely joyful experience. So, what can we say? Okay. Best thing about Nick Lowe, he never split up. No, that's right. He just carried on being Nick Lowe. Anyway, so it was absolutely brilliant. So I was at Nick Lowe's uh, celebration for 50 years in show business, and I felt like that that was it. My career had peaked. Jesus of cool. There I was in the room. There, the me and me and the good lady professor her indoors, literally standing in a corner, going. Everyone here is very. Did you swap glasses and have photos? No, I didn't. No, no. I have, I have, I have had my photograph taken with Nick Lowe before. In fact, I had my photograph taken with him when he was in on your Radio Two show. Yeah. Um, and then I had my photograph taken with him again at the festival hall. It was the Folk Awards, but I thought because it was in, it was in, it was in such company of sort of loving friends that I thought being the person who goes up and goes, can I have a selfie? Is that all right? Would be a little bit. You'd never say that to anybody. Let's, let's be honest. You never call it a selfie. No, I'd call it a picture. It's just so old fashioned. We've got an email here from Lee. Uh, dear young and younger, uh, I'm an MTLTL second time email first oh, medium term second time emailer and first time silly music sender or inner. Oh, really? <laughs> I noticed last week's show seemed more musical than usual with choice commodian vocal performances and noticeably more percussive desk thumping and random thwacks and sound bites. Or maybe my headphones were turned up just a little bit too loud this week. Anyway, for some odd reason, I decided it was a perfectly normal thing to do for a grown-up to waste a good hour or so of life by extracting snippets of sound and throwing them computerwards. Here's what I'm going to call blippertainment, even though there's not a single blip in it, only sounds from last week's show. Like this. Um. Well, um, ka-ching. Um, well, um, <sighs> right. Um, Now, <laughs> that's for, Lee Howell sent that in. It's only 40 sec, 48 seconds long. It felt so much longer. It felt like three hours. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. 
Um, I noticed that all the singing was me. You won't find me wasting precious air time by singing. But you are, you're a musician. That's what you do, apart from <laughs> I'm not a musician, I'm a bassist. An email from Joe. Dear Smartphone and Usher, listening to your podcast just now and the emailer asking if it would be over the top to report the person next to her to a member of staff. As a former cinema employee, I can say that most members of staff will love you for it. Really? This is someone who was uh, recording themselves at a movie. But yeah. Obviously, you can't record stuff in a movie. Anyway, says Joe, recording any part of a film even if it were just a, a short Snapchat selfie, which would be no more than a few seconds and focused on the person rather than the screen, is considered piracy and, as such, yeah, illegal. Absolutely. Therefore, although the lady next to the emailer wasn't recording the screen throughout the film and probably wasn't recording for the purpose of making money off it, she was still very much guilty of piracy. As you may know, cinema employees are generally very poorly paid. What you may not know, however, is that if cinema staff catch and report piracy, they may stand to receive a financial reward from the Film Content Protection Agency, the FCPA, of up to several thousand, several hundred pounds. Beg your pardon, saying, several hundred pounds. Yeah. So if you're in a job that pays minimum wage or barely over minimum wage, like most cinema workers are, that's a lot of money. As such, dear cinema visitor, reporting any behaviour that even hints at piracy to a member of staff would be like directing said member of staff to a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. Even if you're not bothered about code compliance or piracy, although I suspect that as a wit you do very much care about those issues, I hope that's enough reason for you to politely pretend you need a swift toilet break and seek a member of staff. Since finding a member of staff can be difficult, when most cinemas these days never have enough members of staff available to assist visitors, I appreciate that's a big ask, but please don't let that stop you from trying. Perhaps, in the interest of balance and full disclosure and all that, I should also add that reporting any visitors below the minimum age on the certificate of a film does not garner any rewards of any kind. Sadly, that just leads to someone losing their cinema job pretty much on the spot. Kind what regards, for letting them in? Joe, chip on shoulder over leaving enjoyable cinema job for something that could pay the rent. Uh, that's, that's very good. That's quite interesting. That, I, I had no idea about that. So, yeah, so they would react very swiftly by the sound of it from what Jeff yeah, that's, pointed that, out that someone's... That, that's, that's really informative. Dear fellow Brits... I feel like I've learnt something. Says Andy Scott. I just want to reassure you that Chantel in London, Ontario, which is what we were talking about yes. last week, isn't the only Wittertainee in southwestern Ontario. I am a colonial commoner, British guy, immigrated to London, Ontario, the hometown of the devilishly handsome Ryan Gosling. London is a splendid city with fantastic independent cinema called The Highland that plays pretty much all of Mark's films of the week, as well as having a monthly retromania that recently played Cronenberg's Shivers and Videodrome using Cronenberg's own personal 35mm copy. Wow. Maybe this will tempt you to make London your next destination on the cruise. Down with all the Nazis and so on. That's fantastic. So they got, they got Cronenberg's own 35mm copies of those films. We could sail up the Thames yeah. in Canada... And more our ship in London. That would be quite interesting. London, Ontario. Yeah, pick up Andy and a few others. Do you think David Cronenberg would lend us any more of his back catalogue? Uh, I don't know. Who's Maybe... your favourite Canadian filmmaker? Yeah, probably... Probably Cronenberg. Yeah, probably. Probably Cronenberg. Who else should I be considering? No, no, I'm just wondering whether, you know, whether there's anybody else that immediately leaves to mind or whether... No, no. <laughs> so. Has Neil Young made any movies? Well, Neil Young's made that concert movie, but he didn't make it. No. No, actually, that's not true. Neil Young did... What? 
Okay, Neil Young did make, I don't know whether he directed it, Neil Young did make the movie in which he took the car, you know, the old American car that he turned into, why are you landing a plane signals? Why are you but I'm just that? gesticulating like you do. That's all. Okay. What? Have I got? Have I hit gold? Have I come up with something that works? Well, there was a film. And I, okay, when I interviewed Neil Young, he talked about it. Now, f- forgive me because my memory is not what it used Our to team be. Our team, even okay. as you speak, look Neil Young either made or was about to make a film in which he he took an old uh, American car, took the insides of it out, and turned it into something eco friendly, and then drove it around America, talking about the environment. Now, either he was about to do it. Or he had done it. I can't remember which of it the one it was because I was just so stunned by the fact that I was now in a room with Neil Young, who only five minutes previous had shown me how to tune an, a ukulele or an ukulele. According to the IMDb, Neil Young has directed seven films. Well, there we go. And 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 that, they are. And I'm, here we go. The, these are the films he's directed: A Day at the Gallery, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Deja Vu, a documentary, as Bernard Shakey. Okay. Bernard Shakey, that's right. Of course he makes films. Greendale. Greendale is, is the film, isn't it? That's Bernard Shakey as well. Yeah. Is he, is he Weld, the... is that W-E-L-D? Weld, yeah. You know, I knew this. I'd forgotten it all. Human Highway, would it, that one? Rust Never Sleeps, which is obviously, yeah, that's obviously about his album of the same name. Journey Through the Past, which is a documentary based on his song of the same name, and that's Bernard Shakey. The really weird thing is that as they're they're saying all this, I remember that at one point I did know this, but... But you're now old and forgotten. Yeah, Greendale, Greendale, no. Anyway, anyway, so there we go. So, yes, Neil Young is your favourite Canadian filmmaker. Very good. So one more thing, just before we finish. Bernard Shakey, God, how did I forget that? How did I forget everything nowadays? Who are you? I'm just going to read this thing, and then we're going to stop briefly, and then we start the show again, Okay? Is it tea time? It is almost. This is from... Oh, it's another anonymous one. Dear, stop texting and put the Mexican meal away. I was dismayed to hear in last week's podcast from a member of the church who attended a screening of Greece at the Light Cinema Cambridge who reported major phone usage. Major phone usage. And even filming from his neighbouring patron. Towards the end of the email, your listener questioned whether it was appropriate to report the incident to a member of staff. Well, I am a member of staff at said establishment and we actively encourage audience members who encounter such behaviour, to report it to us as we can take action. Warnings, ejecting if necessary. In fact, we make a point of entering the screen between the trailers and the BBFC certificate to remind audiences, in capital letters, to turn off their phones. However, as years of emails to your fine show will testify, the viewing public have a tendency to take this as a light suggestion more than a direct order. Thanks to your good selves for championing civil cinema behaviour, tinkety-tonk, etc. Yours anonymously, currently not manning the usher podium due to the mess in screen three. Yeah. There you go. So thanks, anonymous uh, person, but that's what you have to do. So I was going to say, take your rubbish home with you, but then somebody said there was this whole thing about not taking your rubbish home, wasn't there, about leaving it on the... So life is just so confusing. Life, Modern life is rubbish. Right. That may be a good name for an album, that would be. We should make that. Should we do an album? We should do an album, definitely. Shall we do an album? I think we should. We should get the, the person who made that uh, mashup yes. to do our album. some beds for yes. us. And then, we could and, we can, and then we could make a lot of money. A lot, a lot of money. Okay. We can talk about it now. Okay. And it won't be birdsonged until it actually comes out. Oh, okay. That's great. So what yeah. are we going to be called? A name for us. A name for us. Uh, oh yeah! What's he saying? We, did, we had we had Simon and Marfunkel. 
which that was suggested before. Where did that go? That's that's to be honest, that's game over. That's the that's end it. of it. That's the end of the Simon and Marfunkel. And what's and our first album is called Modern Life is Rubbish. Although there is a problem that someone else is yeah, blurred that. So yeah. so someone else has done it. Okay, we are now going to work on releasing an album. Okay, Simon okay. and Marfunkel. Simon and Marfunkel. <laughs> Just because the title is so good. Anyway, here comes the show. We could wait for the biopic, but instead, let's tell our alternative hero's story through the songs he loves. Hi, I'm Simon Pegg, and this is my sound and vision. From space to Star Trek, Shaun of the Dead to Sisters of Mercy, go behind the soundtracks with me, Miranda Sawyer. Good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Sound and vision with Simon Pegg. Give it to me! Listen on the BBC iPlayer radio app. Can we just establish something, first of all? It's, yes. It's biopic. It's not biopic. It's weird because everyone has started saying biopic. And it's like, it's, it's a biopic. It's a biographical picture. It's so a biopic. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't rhyme with myopic. No, I mean, but, 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 but what's weird is that suddenly everyone is saying biopic. Everyone is wrong. It's almost like a, like a, like a diktat went out around the BBC, like, like they did with, you know, controversy and controversy. You know, how was that one settled? wrongly um but it's biopic it it's is a biopic. biopic it's not a biopic no. well i think okay well there's no disagreement here because <laughs> we all, because we all agree but anyway so that, that was, program sounds brilliant incidentally of course but it's a it sounds very good but it's, it's a biopic n- yeah and every time someone says biopic they need to give money to <laughs> us or society for the short-sighted yeah exactly like that or comic relief so well, and welcome to the program. Anyway, we're here till four o'clock. I'm long sighted. Our... What are you? You you long sighted? Yeah, I think so. I can never remember which way round it is. <laughs> anyway, Eddie Marzan's going to be here. Eddie. Eddie Marzan. Eddie Marzan. Nope. Uh, like like Tarzan. No, like Tarzan. Have it out with him when he gets here. Okay, that would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? Joe Davis, who comes from Clergy Corner, dear regional minister and association youth worker. Well, that's quite interesting. He's obviously stereotyping us into two... What do you, I think I'll be the association youth worker. So what does that make me? Regional minister. You look more important than me. <laughs> really? That's just because I'm dressed as a grown-up. Joe says, I went to see A Quiet Place at the excellent Dome Cinema in Worthing. Which is a very good Which cinema. Which is indeed very yeah. good cinema. Dave Norris has done talks there. Indeed. I have been to see many films there. They did it. I saw Star Wars first time round. Saturday Night Fever at the Dome Cinema. And they when did, it wasn't quite so fabulous. They did a revival of Wish You Were Here, in which the Dome features, as far as That's I remember. Right. The cinema was full and the audience all code compliant, except for one lady, a few seats up from us, who, as the film started, decided this would be the moment to munch on her extremely crunchy nuts, the ones that have some extra layer on the outside for added nuts and noise. Why do cinemas actually sell these in the first place? Anyway, the munching was bad enough, but then she dropped one, and because these nuts with the extra crunchy layer are also spherical, it rolled all the way down the cinema. Our displeasure was obvious, and she was suitably shamed into putting her nuts down. However, just before the first big scary this moment... This does sound like a, a letter to Viz, incidentally. She had obviously decided that she could stealthily attempt another go at the nuts. <laughs> I can see what Perhaps she would just suck them quietly this time. I should explain that nuts come served in an open box, not a packet. So the nuts are in her hand. In an open box, I imagine that she was silently going to take a single nut from the box when, at the same moment, the first big fright happened. Bang! Yes, whole box of nuts in the air, a moment's <laughs> pause, and the sound as loud as gunfire, as nuts with crispy bits, land on the floor and begin their slow descent to the front of the cinema. Ordinarily, this would have been extremely annoying, but given the fright, the whole cinema burst into laughter. 
Thanks, Joe Davis at Clergy Corner. But just don't sell these things because they're super crunchy and super loud. They used to sell only two forms of snack in the cinema. I used to go as a child, which was chocolate raisins or chocolate nuts. Chocolate raisins were quieter. But they came in those little boxes. And also, they used to be in um, vending machines on on train stations. And swimming pools. You could go and get them That's right. Swimming pools also had hot chocolate machines that sold hot chocolate that was not like any other hot chocolate anywhere else in the world. It was a third coffee, a third tea, and a third chocolate. That's why. (laughs) Amanda Fleet. Uh, also uh, has been to A Quiet Place, which we'll come to in the top ten. There was a smallest hill moment fairly early on which are in this film, which I'm sure other health professionals might also be willing to die on. Okay. Emily Blunt's character measured her blood pressure by tying a bandage over what looked like a blood pressure cuff and tightening it like it was a tourniquet. You absolutely do not measure blood pressure with a tourniquet, and even if by some magic you can, you most certainly won't know what the numbers for the pressure are, uh, pressures are mm. if you don't actually have a stethoscope in your ears with the other end yeah, yeah. on the arm yeah. while the pressure comes down. I realise this is very trivial in the grand scheme of things, and I did enjoy the film enormously. That was something that took me completely out of it for the moment. It's such an easy thing to get right, especially if she patently had got a stethoscope because she used it for something else in the very next moment. <laughs> anyway, may your gentleman's undergarments ever be crisp and not crispy. Uh, Tickety-tonk and so on. Uh, that's Amanda. Uh, very nice. Thank that's you very much. Very good greeting. Uh, we'll get to the box office top ten in just a second. Interesting, though, from Nicking Gateshead, first of all. Mark and Simon, he says traditionally, both both Mark and Robbie have mentioned that A Quiet Place is, somewhat surprisingly, produced by Michael Bay. Yes. Famous for his directing of loud, crashy, bang movies. Mm -hmm. However, I'm not entirely clear what a film producer does. Right. Specifically, what creative input into a film the producer has, such as that Michael Bay being producer on A Quiet Place, might be a cause for surprise. I can clearly see how editors... Directors of photography, composers, scriptwriters, foley artists and so on have clear creative input on a film in addition to the director. But I've always assumed that a producer's role was something akin to project management, budgeting, scheduling, hiring and firing and so on. Please could you enlighten us as to a producer's creative role in filmmaking? Thank you very much. Nick and Gateshead. Okay, so basically the role of a producer can vary enormously from a producer who can be a a hands-on producer and, of course, actually in the old days of Hollywood... You know, the producer was the person you remembered and the director was just a hired hand who you know came in to do the job. Right the way down to an executive producer who may be somebody whose name is on the movie for contractual reasons. Um, I remember William Friedkin telling me that the guy who had an exec producer credit, or even producer credit on French Connection, he literally hadn't met before they met at the Academy Awards. So it can be a wide range of things. Uh, every, everything from being really hands-on and effectively controlling everything to being just completely distant and in the background. It, there, it, it is not a single defined role. Sure. OK, so for, for Nick specifically, so therefore it could be fundamental in the artistic steering of a film or yeah. it could be... Or it could be completely um, contractual or it might just be to do with, with, with financing. I, I, but, I, but, but in the case of Michael Bay, because it's his company, you know, um, I mean, he, is, he gets a producer credit as opposed to... So he is the producer of the film. So he, it, my, my suspicion, and I don't know because I haven't read any interviews, my suspicion is that he, you know, is that what he did was allowed... John Krasinski to make the movie he wanted to make, and because um, it looked that's how it looks to me. But he was he would have been able to crack the whip any way he wanted to because he was you know he is the producer. I have I think I can say I have had cause to watch the work of film producers recently. Yes, you have. And, and if you choose 
someone to write the screenplay and if you choose a director you are pushing a film in a particular direction mm -hmm. yeah. that seems to be quite yeah, which is why there is in the old days of Hollywood I mean basically you know you almost think of producers for directors in fact bear in mind that the you know the idea of the the auteur director of the the director being the person in charge of everything is a fairly new idea I mean really it's sort of rooted in Andrew Saris and then you know Pauline Kael's repast and all that sort of stuff it's fairly new for the first 60 years of cinema that wasn't really what everyone thought of as being the case it wasn't you didn't think the director was necessarily the person in charge I mean and often in Hollywood the director was just a hired hand here comes the box office top 10 starting at number 17 uh, which is Funny Cow which I really liked um, I mean it's a very difficult film and it's deliberately so it has a fantastic performance by uh, Maxine Peake as a uh, comic trying to find her feet in the stand-up circuit of the working men's clubs of the 1970s and something early 1980s one of the things that I that I like about it, but also makes the film difficult, is that the routines that she's doing are full of exactly those kind of uh, you know un-PC epithets with which we all grew up. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you if you ever saw comedy in the nineteen seventies, and I said before, I remember really clearly going to see uh, the comic strip upstairs above the Paul Raymond Review Bar in Soho, nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine, whenever it was, just after punk had happened. And suddenly there was this whole idea of overturning all these conventions before, you know, no more mother-in-law jokes, no more racist jokes, no more all that sort of stuff that, that it was just so normal. And I think it's it's brave of the film to portray that stuff as well as it does. And I think Maxine Peake is terrific. And I thought structurally it owed a little bit of a debt to Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, the Andy Serkis, uh, you know, performance as Ian Dury, which I like very much. The Ian Dury biopic. Yeah, the Ian Dury biopic. Thank well you. done. Amanda Eames, uh, living in semi-rural North Yorkshire. I don't get to see films soon after their release, but my husband and I made a special effort to see uh, this film and we were really glad we did. It was different and interesting. All the actors were great, but Maxine Peake was outstanding. Even if my pedantic other half thought her Yorkshire accent, accent was a bit wayward at times, it was definitely worth seeing on a big screen to see her facial expressions up close, a masterclass yeah, yeah. Uh, in acting. Uh, Alastair Dixon... In Coldstream. 2018 has been an amazing year for films uh, so far. Um, however, I think that by December, Funny Cow will probably be contending with Shape of Water and I, Tonya for my film of the year. Oh, great. It was tremendous and the cast outstanding, particularly Maxine, Ke Maxine Peake. Is it Hebe Birdsall? I, I would imagine. Something. Hebe Birdsall and Macy Shackleton, who portrayed the eponymous Funny Cow in middle age, her 20s and childhood, respectively. Uh, the character's sharp wit, timing and defiance were carried across seamlessly. Even uh, every time I thought a storytelling cliché was about to rear its head, the script swerved and rewarded the viewer with a complete surprise. The horror of domestic violence was brought across powerfully without being too graphic. Although the racist, homophobic and sexist jokes of the film's stand-up shows were deeply uncomfortable to sit through, particularly through the protagonist's own set, the film would not have been an accurate or realistic reflection of the comedy scene of that era if it had avoided this. There were some wonderful yeah, exactly. cameos and I thought Paddy Considine performed brilliantly understated comic terms as, as the bookshop owner, Angus. Um, au contraire, says uh, Lara, southern-based northerner, uh, having seen the trailer several times, I settled in for a gritty northern rags to riches via adversity classic British film. What I got was a clunking misstep of a production. On the plus side, the performances from Maxine Peake, Christine Bottomley and Lindsay Coulson were excellent. Alan Armstrong is fantastic as the washed-up ageing comic, while Vic Reeves almost steals the film in less than three minutes on screen. 
There ends the plus points. The dubbing of the actor playing the late teen, earlier 20s funny cow with pig's voice is just bizarre. Using Stephen Graham as both father and son is an interesting idea, but doesn't work. The character played by Paddy Considine, a wonderful actor, is given every cliche possible. I've seen a couple of interviews where Maxine Peake who is also the executive producer, has talked about keeping the film authentic to the time. Thus, in the very few moments where Armstrong and Peake's characters are seen performing stand-up, we're subjected to homophobic and racist language. This is utterly unnecessary. Yes, the Northern Working Men's Clubs were the stomping ground, the likes of Bernard Manning and Chubby Brown, but they were also where people like Ken Dodd, Les Dawson, Roy Walker and a host of other comedians plied their trade without resorting to offensive racist jokes. When so little actual stand-up is on screen, it would have been very easy to avoid this sort of language. Overall, a very disappointing film, particularly as it had all the elements to be superb. Well, as I said, I mean, it, my feeling was that those those scenes would absolutely divide people, not least because they're unchallenged, but um, they rang true to me. So that's at 17, but we just inserted because yeah. we talked about, a lot about it uh, last week. So Blade Runner, the final cut. This is secret cinema. Secret, yeah. I mean, uh, is, it, is it number 10? Bla- you've seen Blade Runner, the final cut, as opposed to any other version. You've seen other versions of Blade Runner as well, haven't you? I have seen that version and I, I have seen other versions. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's still astonishing. Even after all these years, it's still astonishing. I haven't seen the secret cinema presentation, so I don't know what they did with that, but the film itself is great. Uh, Black Panther's at number nine, really still good. there. Re- yeah, really good. Still, you know, still drawing in the audience and really well put together, really enjoyable. Love, Simon, is at number eight. Uh, you, now, you now I was going to, and I haven't. Unf- unfortunately, the good lady Professor her indoors and my daughter went to see it, and it was, so it was really good. So, so, what, so their review is? Really good. And everybody else's review is really good. And I haven't yet heard anyone not like it. Uh, this from uh, an email from Brett, uh, who says, I'm an MTL and MTUR, which he says means multiple time unrequited emailer. Recently exiled. <laughs> an unrequited emailer. Yeah, meaning that. Yeah, no, I know what it means, yeah. but it's just it's an interesting phrase. Recently exiled to California from sunny Edinburgh. A couple of weeks ago, my husband and I went to see Love, Simon, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. As a physicist slash economist and soon to be Ironman triathlete, I think it's fair to say there haven't been many on-screen gay characters who I could really relate to until now. Simon's situation resonated so strongly with my own conflict about coming out, I couldn't believe it. I had a super liberal set of friends and family who were never going to do anything but accept me. Yet exposing this thing about myself was still the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It also struck me for the first time uh, what it meant to have diversity in film. As a middle-class cis white male, I had countless heroes to look up to in movies, but seeing my own experience represented so faithfully for the first time made me realise how important it is to be able to identify with the people we see on screen. I look forward to the day that everyone can say the same. I could rant all day about everything I loved about the film, the reaction of the parents, honest and imperfect, the soundtrack and all that, but I've got my first full Ironman in two weeks, so I really should go and do some training. <laughs> yes, my husband Craig, who I have to thank for my conversion to the church, followed me out to San Francisco in January. He's just started a new job and could really do with an it'll be all right in the end. It will be all right in the Is end. Is that right? Yeah. When you said the first Ironman, I thought you meant you were going to see the. F- I thought you meant you were going to see Avengers Infinity War. You need to get into or, training for it. I'm sorry. going to be in the yeah. new Ironman. Because the Ironman, it's a form of marathon, right? It's like you yes. have to run up hills and yes. eat buildings or something. So, exactly like yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Love, Simon's at number eight. Uh, the Greatest Showman is at seven. I mean, what more is there to say? It's out on DVD in two weeks' time. It's still going to be in the cinema charts at the point at which it turns up on Blu-ray. That's that's how... How many weeks has it been in the charts? 196. 17. Okay. This is its 17th week in the charts. It's like... 
everything I do, I do it for you, except it didn't go to number one straight away. It went to number one in its sixth week or something. Is that like the longest day in the top ten for a long time? It must be. I no, I mean, I'm sure there are things that are longer than that, but it's pretty damn good. Particularly, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find another movie that's had that kind of run that got the kind of reviews that it got. Uh, so Greatest Showman is at seven. Truth or Dare is at six. Which I haven't seen. Uh, Peter Rabbit is at five. Which I have seen, and I'm delighted to see that it's dropping down the charts finally in its sixth week. It's taken a huge amount of money, and we've had many emails Take from people... more than Paddington. Yeah. I know. Anyway, sorry to disrupt your... No, no, but it's... it's... And there, in a nutshell, you have it. I have what, though? You now live Problem in a world... with life? You now... No, no, not you... We now live in a world in which apparently Peter Rabbit is more successful than Paddington. And you go... <sighs> Ready Player One is in number four. I liked it. I thought it was fun. Second time round, it wasn't quite as good as I experienced it the first time. First time, I was just really knocked out by the by how well it worked. And I, as somebody who's not a, a, a video gamer, I was really impressed by the, the world that it evoked. And I thought it was really good fun. Second time round... It's funny when I was watching it. There's lots of there's lots of things that don't make any sense, and they didn't matter to me while I was watching it. Then afterwards, I thought about them. The second time round, I was very aware of them. Like you know, you know the bit when when they're all in the virtual suits, and then something will happen on the on the imaginary battlefield, not the imaginary, the, the virtual battlefield, right? Yes. And a whole swathe of people will be knocked down. Yes. And then it would cut to the rooms in which those people were playing virtually. And they'd all fall over together. But why? They wouldn't all be in the same place. Why would they all be standing next to you? You're standing next to somebody in a virtual world, but you wouldn't be standing next to them in the room. I think you're overthinking it. Just go for the ride. Why, why, why are the people doing the virtual reality out on the street? They're, they're, they're having fights out on the street. We cut from... But why would they be on the street? Everyone's doing it everywhere. But why would they be doing it on the streets? How does that work? They haven't got a treadmill. How? Why? Why wouldn't they be doing it in the street? Because they haven't. They're not. How's the virtual reality thing? How are they functioning? The it's vir- the future, mate. I don't know. Oh, it's the future. I <laughs> see. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I didn't realize that was the answer. Is it's the future? Just go with it. I did the first time round. I did go with it. Live a bit. Second more. time round, I went. Stephen, hang on a minute. It's too late for that. Yeah, it is. Uh, number. The train three. has left the station. As Tom Hanks is. Walt Disney tells Emma Thompson's E.L. Travers. Thank you. Thank you. Number three, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society. I will go first. This is uh, from Ash Taylor. Dear Potato and Peel, uh, 19-year-old and six weeks listener here, still getting up to speed with all the in-jokes, but have a fairly decent understanding so far. Thanks, Ash. I went to see T. Glaps yesterday at the showroom in Sheffield. It was one of these acronyms that actually helps. <laughs> it does. You know, it? Saves a lot of time. Yeah, because that name is just very hard to... After having listened to Mark's thoughts on it on the programme, I thought it looked like a charming and heartwarming film. But from all I've seen, Mark's criticism seemed valid. When I started watching, I was initially put off by how obvious the plot seemed and felt like the charmingness of it did seem a bit over the top, but I ended up leaving the cinema having sobbed. I can't necessarily say it was a great film, but I loved it all the same. I was given a really lovely tale about how books and stories can bring people together and the nature of choosing your family, which are themes that really get to me. I had some issues with the film's portrayal of the Nazi occupation and with characters saying that one of the Nazi officers was a good man and this is never really properly uh, questioned. Plus, I didn't overly care for the romance plot. And yes... Any time there was beautiful scenery given, I was distracted by the fact that it had it was been Devon. shot uh, in Devon. Uh, but I, I, Ash is probably onto something there because I think, well, I mean, w- we'll see. It's number three at the moment. I think it might be one of those films that 
over given the relatively sniffy reviews, it might do quite well because it'll find its audience. How, sorry, have the other reviews been sniffy? Um, I think they've been, you know, two and a half, three star kind of uh, yeah. reviews. Here's the thoughts of James King in Southampton. Not uh, that one. I imagine it's not that James King because he doesn't need to email the show, does he? He's yes, well, I mean, well. no, I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd always he'd always love to email the show. Anyway, yeah, but he might have moved to Southampton secretly and not told me. Um, so he says the director Mike Newell suggested good things, and I had heard good reports, so everything was set fair. Uh, however, the script turned out to be limp. In the extreme, each scene could have lasted just a few seconds to get the message across. Instead, they dragged on for minutes at a time. The whole film could have been cut by half an hour. Conversely, scenes were missing to provide backstory for the characters so you had no sympathy and didn't care for them. This and the script meant that you at all times were feeling you were watching actors act. Three writers are credited for the screenplay, never a good sign. It's not an atrocious film, just mediocre and forgettable. It could have been so much better, most definitely the worst film I've seen this year. Well, you've got to go for it, James. Earlier, he refers to it in an early paragraph as Guernsey Pie. That's uh, yeah. That's but the problem. thing about the um, film, yeah, no, that's right. The director, right. no, no, it's yeah, no, no, you're absolutely okay. So, the thing about, him, I mean, my main issue was to do with the quaintness of it. And when there was one of the questions raised about, you know, the depiction of the occupation and the depiction of one of the, one of the characters as being, you know, particular, it is definitely true that. It, for a film that has at its heart the idea of, you know, Nazi occupation, it really does steer very, very clear of m- most of the, m- you know, more realistic and, you know, grimier aspects of that thing. Because right from the beginning, there's a scene when when they make up the name, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, the reason is because they're coming home from a place where they've been keeping a pig, which is kind of like, um, you know, a private function. And they're stopped by the Nazis. And the Nazis say, why are you, you know, where are you going? And they go, oh, we're coming back from a society. And they go, well, what, what's the name of the society? And you go, oh, one of them starts saying literary and one of them starts saying that's how they get the go. So even that confrontation at the very beginning is set up very much in a kind of LOLO sort of way. It's not, there's, you know that it's never going to go any darker than that. And so, I mean, the only thing I'd say, therefore, is that it is a film in which that title the quaintness of that title is absolutely shot through every moment of the film itself. Don't go there expecting anything other than exactly what you see with the poster and what you get from that title. Quaint, you know, whimsical with some lovely Devon scenery. That's at number three. A Quiet Place is at number two. Which I just, I'm really excited by how well it's done. I think John Krasinski did a really brilliant job with it. I think Emily Blunt is great in the film. I love the fact that it's a film which, when I saw it, made an audience go quiet. I know that other people have had slightly different experiences of it, but I've had many conversations with people who had the same thing. They've been with a potentially noisy audience and the film has done that thing about making them go quiet. And because you said, and you were absolutely right, I keep thinking about this now, that you were told by a school teacher that when they go, when the kids go noisy, you go quiet. And yeah, no, this is this is advice for for uh, like doing conjuring. If you're doing conjuring tricks and that, but if you stand in front of a crowd of kids, you don't shout above them. You go quiet. Yeah. And it's and that is literally what the film does. It does exactly that. And I it, I thought it was breathtaking the way that it worked. I thought it, I thought it worked really well. It was really really. Good. I mean, yes. Afterwards, I started going. Hang on, but why doesn't and that doesn't you know this doesn't. And I started doing very much the kind of ready play one thing. But I don't care because I just think as a sort of formal exercise, it worked really well. And I like the character and. 
as good lady Professor Herring Dawes keeps saying, it's a film about family. That is fundamentally what it's about. And that's why it works, because you believe in the family. Even if you don't quite believe in the rest of the circumstance sometimes, you believe in the family, and that actually takes you through everything else. Paul Tonkinson sends us an email. Never sent an email to any show ever. Big fan of the show. Went to university with Mark. Often listen in the car. Stuck in Friday traffic on the way to a gig. He's, uh, Paul is a comedian. Do you remember Paul Tonkinson? Better say you do. I do. We went to university together. Yeah. Yes, there you go. I enjoyed A Quiet Place. Brilliant performances. Well written. It just didn't frighten me enough. I can't help feeling it was because the premise isn't ultimately that threatening. I'm no genius, but given that the human race is being... Can I say all this? Is being attacked by a species entirely blind but extremely sensitive to sound. Well, you are told that pretty early on and the film is called A Quiet Place, so I think that's okay. Isn't the first thing people would do is create a huge sound, gather all the monsters and kill them all? This feels like a no-brainer, possibly some sort of sound system leading them to a grinding device or a floating (laughs) disco to tempt them off a cliff. Having said that, and given that the parents in the movie hadn't reached this conclusion, it felt like downright irresponsible parenting to bring a child into such a dangerous environment. You know, hang on, but okay, a couple of people have said this thing about why are they bringing a child into this environment? I think it is evidently clear, although they don't have to have that conversation, that they didn't that that didn't happen on purpose. It happened because they are a young couple with a you know a a full relationship. It wasn't that they sat down and started family planning, you know, it's that they... So, it's a full, that's a, so OK, we have a full relationship, so it's just one of those things. It just happened, Your Honour. <laughs> I don't know how it happened, it just did. No, no, maybe... Do you have a full relationship? Well, I don't know. Sometimes. Um, so that's number two. Quiet Places at number two. Rampage is at number one. It's... It, it, yeah, okay, it's you go ahead. Sean go. in Leith. Um, is, there I went, sun, is there sunshine, please? I went to a near-empty late afternoon screening of Rampage yesterday, expecting... Some big dumb fun. Didn't disappoint. Packing plenty of that with emphasis on the dumb into its very reasonable running time. The concept is as irrelevantly unbelievable as the plot is comfortably predictable. Having all the subtlety of the rock's pectoral muscles. What's what's easier to believe than the ridiculous super animal premise is that if a giant albino gorilla were to befriend a member of the human race, it's not unlikely that human would be Dwayne Johnson. No, that is true. The humongous primate at the heart of the film is pleasingly warm and empathetic with a sense of humour, and the gorilla is quite good too. Ha-ha. See what they have. I mean, I kind of enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it as much as Robbie did, um, but I did I did enjoy it. I thought it was it, it knew what it was doing, and it was it was... Kind of fine. Eddie um, Marlson is on the way. The other side of the news, we're going to be talking about Entebbe, his new film. Just before the news is brought, can I ask you, because you're very precise and uh, uh, exacting in your standards of grammar. Okay. On the BBC News Channel at the moment, they were reporting this ABBA story. Yes. So there's some two new but ABBA Please, Please tell me they're not saying ABBA. No, the strap line says ABBA is back. ABBA are back. But was, no, but the, you're, they are right, okay? Who, it, who's right? It is the, correct. ABBA is back. Because ABBA is a singular group, but I agree. I would naturally say, like ABBA are back, because you wouldn't say uh, Liverpool is champions, would you? Say Liverpool are, are champions. champions because Liverpool in this in this I know, although is a collective. I know, of although weirdly enough, and I believe me, I've, I've had this discussion with enough sub editors over the years. Yeah, but they're you can't no no one no one is saying. Okay. Isn't it good news that ABBA is back? Okay. I, I agree with you that I absolutely that sounds completely wrong, and I would say ABBA are back in the same way that I'd say that Led Zeppelin are back. But technically, it would be wrong because there ABBA is a single thing. Yes, but ABBA represents a group of people. I, 
Manchester City. I'm is... not. I'm not arguing with you. I'm agreeing with you. But I'm telling you that technically. Well. Let's see how the news reports it, shall we? Okay, it's like the whole thing about you know Terry Gilliam saying it's a whole bunch of water. It's not technically correct, but it sounds fine to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's see what happens in the news as we on go. No, that's <laughs> as we go on. As we on go towards the, news. towards the news. As long as it's not a biopic, they'll be fine. Eddie Marsden on the way. It's two thirty-two. And uh, welcome back. And if you're watching on the live cam, now it's a proper it's a proper thing to watch. Normally, it's just me and Mark. And sometimes it's just you. And sometimes it's just me if you're abroad doing gigs or something like that. But this time, you get to actually look at a top movie star because Eddie Marsden is in the studio. Hello, Eddie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's very nice to see you again. You're looking particularly well and trim and healthy and... Well, I knew you had a you had a cam on. I've got the makeup. I've you know I've done it. I'm, I'm I'm breathing in as we speak. Is that right? <laughs> is that right? Can we sorry? Can we do something from the very beginning? Okay, I, I've been a huge fan of yours for years. You know this, okay? So, um, and I always said Eddie Marsan, and because Mike Lee said to me Eddie Marsan, okay, and then Marsan, Marsan, and I then apparently we asked we asked your agent, and he said, oh no, it's pronounced in a different Eddie. Who is what's the absolutely definitively correct pronunciation? Marsan. Marsan. Thank you. Thank- it's a soft S, yeah. Okay, so Marsan. It's French, yeah. It's yeah, Marsan. so Mike Lee was right. Well, we were told officially by your people that it's Marsan like Tarzan. No, it's Marsan. My, my old man says Marsan because all the EastEnders can't say Marsan, but it's Marsan. How, and what do you say? I say, uh, uh, I say Marsan unless I get angry then I, then I turn east end and I say Marsden. <laughs> so they're both okay. Yeah, they're fine. And do you say Abba is back or do you say Abba are back? Did you catch this? This was on the news report. They said Abba is back. They had a strap line that went across it. Now obviously because Abba have got they got some In case you didn't know Abba have reformed. I, yeah, it would be it would be our back. You would say the Beatles are back. Exactly. You exactly. wouldn't say Abba. Yeah, I don't know. That's like different because the Beatles is a plural is, is, is it, no, plural. Okay. okay, you so, would so, say Manchester City are champions. Yeah. You wouldn't say yeah. there is champion. I mean, no. that'd be ludicrous. <laughs> now, more importantly, if somebody made a film about the life of somebody else, what is that film called? What is the the genre of a film about somebody's life? The, the thing that's a, a shortened version of biographical picture. How would you say that? How would you say it? Biopic. Biopic. Exactly. There you, you go. Say, Thank you very much. There we go. Everyone Thanks, Eddie. Thanks for saying... coming in. Anyway, <laughs> everyone saying <laughs> biopic, which is which is ludicrous. No, that sounds like you cut something away. and You're going to send it for test. Exactly. What's wrong with the world? Hey? Exactly. <laughs> anyway, before we start talking about Entebbe, Neil in Portsmouth gets in touch. Um, as you have Eddie on the show this week, can you ask him this? I was an extra alongside Eddie on the disappointing British thriller Empire State in 1987. Yes. That's going back. He may remember dancing for a whole day to Don't Leave Me This Way yes. in the elaborate nightclub set. They had to play that track as the original music they'd written for the film was too slow and boring to dance to. Anyway, at the time, Eddie was clearly convinced he was going to make it as an actor. We were more sceptical, says Neil. Can I ask him if he, re- if he always remained that confident or were there times when he thought it would never happen? No, actually, Empire State was my epiphany to become an actor. I was a, I was currently at that time I was an apprentice printer, but I used to dance a lot. I used to I used to love what we would call rare groove and James Brown and or Northern Soul, mm-hmm. and they picked me up on a, a a club in Hackney Road and they said, "Would you guys come and be an extra?" And me, me and my mates went, and I saw Jamie Foreman do a scene where he had to walk across the dance floor, and it suddenly hit me that I can do that. That's what I want to do. And that was the first time I really thought about being an actor. 
was on Empire really? State. And I never got to see the film because I was going to go and see the film at the Mile End ABC and then um, half of Bethnal Green were extras in the film and they burnt the cinema down before we got to see the film. So it must have been terrible. I've never seen it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Are you, not in- are you not intrigued to sort of find a copy or no no <laughs> no i've never i've never I've, there's loads of things i've I've never seen limehouse golem really you said to me you've seen limehouse yeah, yeah. Seen limehouse that. Golem, yeah. yeah i've never seen you're it. really good in it oh, it's, it's, i much. really like that film yeah, you're yeah. really good in it oh thank you very much did you i mean and, and also this you know the the revelation moment yeah when it, yeah it's, it's really quite what so you didn't see it because you don't like to watch yourself on screen or because you're too busy or? i don't have time i honestly don't have, and on, if it's not on a flight i probably ain't gonna see it wow so because you've done, I mean, you've done more. That you have a more more than a hundred film, yeah. TV, yeah. credits. So that just makes you like the most busy actor of all time. If you're too busy to check your own work, that's well, great. yeah, I suppose so. It's just, but it's just, you know, you put your head down and you get on with it, you know. And I've got four young children, so some films you can't put on for them. No, you sure. Know? So you kind but of a lot of your films you yeah. can't put on for them. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of can't, you know. And I usually fall asleep by the time. They go, you know, I read them a story and I fall asleep with them. So you don't get time to watch anything else. But you don't have a... It's not that you have a problem with watching yourself. It's not that you think that you'd be sort of critical of it. or Because some people just really don't like watching themselves on screen. No, I never have that problem. Okay, no. you just literally don't get around to doing get, it. to get around to doing it. Is there not like a huge part of you... Because I want to know... You know how because we I asked you before you came on I said have you ever been made a movie that then turned out you weren't in you didn't know about it and you did you said there was a case yeah um, are you not just curious to know how it worked out and how everything no, apparently not no not really no some films I am and it's not that I wasn't with Limehouse Gollum but it was kind of uh, you just get don't get time to sit down and watch them of all the performances of yours that you actually have watched <laughs> which was the one that you sat there and thought this is pretty good actually that's what I want to do. Um, quite I quite like um, the best of men. I thought I enjoyed the, I enjoyed that because I thought the story was a beautiful story. My worst performance was Hancock. I hated Hancock. My performance in Hancock. Anyway. Why? Because I just done Happy Go Lucky, and if you watch Hancock, I, I literally finished Happy Go Lucky on a Thursday, and on a Sunday I was in LA and they gave me a bazooka and I had to blow up Will Smith. <laughs> and the character in Hancock is that is Scott from Happy Go Lucky. Really? With, Still yeah, with an American accent. <laughs> So he's Scott with an American accent, still believing in conspiracy theories yeah. with a bazooka. That's yeah. a dangerous. That's, yeah. a, that's yeah. a dangerous combination. Anyway, speaking of bazookas, uh, we should. As you, you haven't just come here to pay a visit and just see how we're doing. No, he did. He just came in to correct our pronunciation on a few words. <laughs> oh, hang out. Yeah, he's, he's got an afternoon off. I'm off now. He's going uh, to the pictures. Eddie Marsan is here because in Tebby is a new movie which comes out uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, Older viewers may well remember the other Entebbe films, like Radon Entebbe, which came out sort of a couple of years after the actual incident. And Victory Entebbe. They were both, they were, this is one of these weird things. They were in the cinema at the same time. I mean, I think you're slightly younger than I am, but I remember really, you had the choice. You could either go to the ABC and see Victory Entebbe, or you could go to the Odeon and see Radon Entebbe, and they were both playing at the same time. I wouldn't see Victory Entebbe because it just happened, well, it had Linda Blair in it. So that's what, but there was, it was one of those weird cases in which two movies about the same historical event in the cinemas at the same time. So here we are many decades later. Eddie, tell us the story because there'll be a lot of people for whom this is the first time they'll have seen this story. Well, in, in, um, in Tebe is the story about East German um, terrorists who, along with um, the Palestinian liberation movement, um, hijacked a plane in Athens. And rather than take it to... Uh, take it to Israel because it was mainly there were mainly Israeli passengers on board they took it to Entebbe they released all the French 
it was a French plane. They released all the non-Jewish passengers and they kept kept all the Jewish um, people in in the Entebbe airport. And Idi Amin was uh, facilitating the hijacking. And then Shimon Perez and Yitzhak Rabin had to decide what to do. So they came up with the plan of Entebbe, where they had to fly all the way to Uganda with um, the Israeli Secret Service. And and the raid on Entebbe was the release of the hostages, which was actually very successful. Yitzhak Rabin is the prime minister. Shimon Perez is the defence minister. And that's, that's you. Right. Yes. So so you are. Uh, so all the scenes that we see you in, they're the decision-making decisions uh, in taking place uh, in Israel. Tell us about how you how you become Shimon Peres and get into the mind of this man who, if I remember correctly, he was he was unique amongst some Israeli politicians because he was not a soldier. This is yes. uh, th- this man is a pure politics. Yes. Well, what when Jose asked me to do the film, he said I want the film to be an answer against populism. So I then had to ask him what function you want Shimon Peres, the character Shimon Peres, to play in this the film. And he wanted the film to be about people making very difficult decisions in a very complex situation. And Shimon Peres was... David Ben-Gurion was the man who founded Israel, and he had a team working with him, and most of them were soldiers. The only one who wasn't a soldier was Shimon Peres. So I took that as a, as a hook... So when he was in a room with other um, soldiers, I, I always wanted to play this man as a politician. Whenever I play a character, I, I find I choose an essence, and, I, and I, that's always my point of reference. And my point of reference was Shimon Perez was a politician. Be a politician is always a political decision. And, and, and what's beautiful about the film and why I'm really proud of the film, it's not a film about heroes and villains and it's about an, an heroic raid. It's about people making a difficult decision in a complex situation. Everybody starts the film with an ideological bias, with an ide- ideology, and they have to let go of that ideology to solve this problem. Uh, let's, let's play a clip uh, from the movie uh, featuring Eddie as Shimon Perez, as he says, and Leo Ashkenazi as Yitzhak Rabin. Shimon, let me explain the situation as it stands. We have no intelligence. We only know the hostages are in the terminal, nothing else. What if they moved them around last night? What if now we have people sitting in the middle of them with guns and grenades? As soon as they know we're coming, they start to kill the men, the women, the children. So, they are selecting Jews and you want to negotiate? Shimon, if we don't negotiate, if we never negotiate, if we're always at war, then we will make our country a prison and every one of our citizens will be a prisoner. Is so the answer to populism that your director was after is in portraying this particular raid, this particular situation as incredibly complex and not a very, very straightforward decision. Yes, because it wasn't a very straightforward um, situation. The reason, um, for instance, with, with Perez and Rabin, the reason the raid came about wasn't necessarily because they thought that we can do this. Perez was was trying to put pressure on Rabin because he just lost the um, Labour Party leadership election. So he was trying to to put Rabin into a corner where he had to agree to this raid and he, and then he would get the blame for it. But if he didn't do it, he would get the blame for that as well. So it was all about the politics. There were, nobody was perfect. There were very underhand things going on. And I, I don't mean that to be criticism critical of anybody, but that's the reality of things. And and Jose said he's very tired of people 
proclaiming there to be simple answers to situations. And when you say Jose, you mean Jose Bedil, who's exactly, the director? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So that appealed to me as an actor because I often play characters. I, I often play characters who, are, who have contrasting elements to them, paradoxical elements to them, you know. And, and I wanted to play it within this. The, 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 the Perez that I play in this is not the Perez who received the Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 90. This man was a man who was full of ambition and wanted to become the Israeli Prime Minister. And the screenplay is by Gregory Burke, yes. who, of course, very well known for, for Black Watch. When did you did you accept the role, having read it, or was it how did, how did what what made you say yes? I read it, and then I went to meet Jose, and he told me his idea of it because I was very loath to make a kind of um, born identity, you know, a kind of a macho film about guys, yeah. and I just thought that doesn't interest me. And when he told me why he wanted to make the film. I, I decided that that was something that I, I wanted to be part of. One of the, the, the most unexpected things a film does is, as I said, we've, we've seen this story told in television movies and in movies, but there is this weird dance mm. thing which goes all the way through, which is not what you would expect yeah. from that kind of movie. Do you want to just explain how that came about and how much you knew about that beforehand? Um, it, when I was working with Jose, Jose is Brazilian, so he's a very rhythmic... Um, he's filming and the way he makes a film and the way he cuts and everything is very rhythmical, it's very musical. And we were talking, he was talking about this Churchill quote when someone said to Churchill, we should shut the theatres during the Blitz. And he said, well, if we shut the theatres, what's the point of having a war? <laughs> why, why are we fighting? And he loved that idea. And he loved the idea of the Israeli soldier saying to the, there's a young, there's a character of an Israeli soldier who goes on the Entebbe raid and his girlfriend is a dancer. And, and he says, I fight so you can dance. And I think Jose had a choice. He could have made the film about the raid and be all really macho and show these guys going in and there's lots of blood. But he decided to turn it into the dance. And what I admired about that was this could have been a very macho film. And in, 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 in essence, it's, it, it transcends that by going into this dance. Because the dance is a beautiful dance. They start off as very Hasidic Jews. And at the end of the dance, they're virtually naked. And it's a beautiful metaphor for what he was trying to do with the film, I think. And and, and in that dance, which is um, uh, from the Bathsheba Dance Company, yeah. they the, all the dancers are, are with chairs, and as you say, they take their clothes yeah. off. And, and there's one... I'm just trying to make sure that I've got this metaphor right. And there's one dancer, who's the girlfriend that you mentioned, yeah. consistently falls to the yes. ground. Yes. And, I, and she, either she can't get up or she won't get up to fit right. in... The formation, and I'm. I was trying to think. Is, does she? What does she? Rep, what is she representing? Or maybe I'm overthinking this. No, but I think that's great that you, that you. That it makes you think that. I don't know. I to be honest with you, I don't know because I don't know the guy who choreographed it. But what I love is that it's making you think that. But there's a section in which the in which the the director of the dance says to her, "You have to commit to it." Basically, he says, "You're not. You're. You're not." You're you're holding back. You're not fully yeah. committing to it, and you see that she's wearing knee pads because obviously every time she does the fall, it's a very physical thing. And it and he says you have essentially saying you have to throw your, yourself into yes. it. And I took that as being in co connection with what he was saying that there's a difficult decision to be made, and in the end, you have to you have to go with it. Yeah. yeah. Plus, you're a dancer, so you look at it as you just told us that you that you used to be do quite a lot of dancing. So. I used to, yeah, I used to like to dance. Do you still dance? I just danced in a film called White Boy Rick for. Um, uh, that I did with Matthew Mahoney, and they got me to do this big dance scene in a club in Chicago. Did you dance with Matthew Mahoney? With no, Mike? I danced. He's, he wasn't in the scene, but I did, <laughs> I did the whole big long speech of me just dancing. Are you doing Northern Soul dancing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now I look like an an an, an retired accountant. <laughs> <laughs> in the um in the clip that we just heard, 
And it's a, it's a line that comes up, I think, two, maybe three times. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin says, as Prime Minister, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, unless we negotiate, there will always be war. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it felt as though that was also one of the things that your director was, was wanting to get, because that speaks very specifically to present-day politics. And, you know, the situation between Israel and Palestine still is not sorted. But clearly that seemed to be the director saying, this is, this is what I'm saying. Or the writer, yeah. because that, the writer. That, that's, I would Indeed. assume that was in Gregory Burke's script. It was, yeah. it was. But one of the great things about doing the scenes that we were doing within the Israeli cabinet was all the all the all the actors were they were all Israelis, so their their opinions of the Israeli Palestinian conflict are as varied as ours. They're not all pro Netanyahu or anti Netanyahu. So they, you know, and they're a bunch of Jewish guys who love to argue with each other and debate. So you sit there and you soak it all up. And and because uh, Jose is is a very kind of improv, he improvises a lot and allows me to come up with stuff. Me and Lior would come up with stuff. That scene you that scene you did there. That me and Lior would kind of work that out in a mm-hmm. sense. With but with the writer as well. In, in no no disrespect for the writer, but he kind of sets the framework. It's like writing a piece of music. Then you ask two musicians to come in and jam and and add a bit. And me and Lior did that. But it was all informed by the debate that was going on with the Israeli actors. One of the things that every actor who plays a, 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 a real person and has to wear a certain amount of makeup in order to sort of fit is they always say, I hate the makeup, I hate the makeup, it's really difficult to work under. You have a certain amount, obviously, with each other. Yeah. Comfortable or uncomfortable? Um, relatively comfortable. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. I, didn't, I didn't find it too, too bad. I didn't find it too hard. It came, I, I did, um, I'd played Bob Dylan about two years before and my wife had done the makeup with Bob Dylan and then when we did um, Rabin, um, Perez, I realised that I I needed to look completely different. I you I I, I didn't think people were going to believe as me as Rabin uh, Perez, so I had to change the way I looked, yeah. and I found it very comfortable. Well, wow. uh, Liz in Winchester on this text, Eddie's portrayal of Ludwig Gutmann in The Best of Men was stellar. My dad trained at Stoke Mandeville after the war when Gutmann was there. I wish he'd been alive to see it. Uh, Steve Williamson in Kessingland. I must confess, I've not seen. Uh, uh, Eddie, I haven't seen much of uh, Eddie, but Still Life was one of the best films I've ever seen. I was Still in Life tears at lovely. the end. Uh, thanks, Eddie, for an excellent performance. Can I just ask you about just while we while we have you here, um, we're going to do uh, our Avengers movie review in a bit, aren't we? I, I think that's my job. Yes, Infinity. <laughs> I think I'm required to do that. Yes, and uh, you you tweeted a few days ago about an actor. Uh, who now has his own poster? Uh, Benny Wong. Yeah, yeah, and and because and, and you were all struggling actors together. We just, were. Just yeah. tell us about him. We were all we were all struggling actors together. And um, who's the actor? Uh, the, there was a Chinese actor who used to do a TV show called The Chinese Detective. Do you remember the guy? David. Our top team are now looking that up, and it's David. Be with uh, well, anyway, he was kind of the most successful Chinese actor. David Yip. They, yeah, David and, we, Yip. and and he was and and Benny said when we were all young actors, and Benny said. I knew I was in trouble when I was when I just left drama school and I was signing on and ahead of me was David Yip who was queuing up to sign on and he was the most successful Chinese actor this country's ever had and and Benny was was always a brilliant actor but he always knew that it was going to be a struggle because the the roles weren't written for him you know and be, and nowadays thank god they're casting people not based on race they they're casting everybody and everything and, and we accept that but at the time, Benny was really struggling. And to see him now with his own Marvel poster and to know how much he struggled and to know how great he it was, it's just, 
it's great. There's hope for me yet. Yeah. <laughs> and you, that's right, because if only you could get more work. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, you have been slacking a bit. How many, 100 and how many movies? But what was it? Because because uh, you said that he was like the best of us, or he was uh, yeah. he was clearly fantastic. Yeah. Because there was there was something there was something about him and, and the way he worked in his performances that was just so subtle and 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 so I remember watching he was very lyrical Benny there was something about him that was just so gentle and it was something that I aspired to and I tried to copy to a certain extent when I watched him so in a sense I did take a lot from him so I have to say that at that stage when he was younger he was an example for me to follow and of course you work with Paul Bettany in Gangster Number yeah. One all those years ago and of course yeah. Paul Bettany now so it's a central uh, part of the Avengers yeah pack, yeah so so it's just you, really, Eddie. You're right. It's just me. Come on, Eddie. Yes, you're absolutely. Uh, in, in Entebbe, uh, you have an interesting uh, selection of nut. Uh, when, when you're in the cabinet meetings, you seem to be eating an awful lot of nuts. I yeah. That was quite good. I thought that was, I can see how that was an aid to decision making. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I remember doing that because I wanted him to be enjoying the difficulty that Rabin was in. So I said, let him sit down and be quite arrogant and eat nuts in the Prime Minister's office. Yeah. Of all the films you've made, what's the one you're most proud of? Um, Happy Go Lucky, I think. Happy Go Lucky. And the people still shout in Raha Poppy at you in the They street? do. The funny thing is, when, when they had all that fuss with that um, mural in Brick Lane that yes. had the, the yeah, yeah. Jewish-looking people around the Monopoly and stuff... Yeah. The the triangle with the eye above it was Enraha. It was, wasn't it? That was Enraha yeah. above that. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So Scott, your fantastic conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah, he could come back with his own movie. He could. He could. What are, what are we going to see you in next? Deadpool two and Entebbe. Right. So Deadpool two is a week after. A couple of weeks time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there we are. You're, you're in. You're in I'm that in, universe. In that. You're in the universe. It's basically easier to mention the films that you're not involved with. Really. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, so uh, Deadpool 2 and then uh, Entebbe comes out in a couple of weeks' time. Eddie, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming Thank in. you, guys. Love to speak to you. And that's Eddie Marsan, who's been our guest uh, on the show. Eddie, thanks very much indeed. Uh, so Mark's review of Avengers Infinity War coming up in just a moment. Some of your correspondence as well. And by the way, thank you to everybody who's already voted for us in the British Podcast Awards. What's that, Simon? The... It's the British Podcast Awards. and uh, if Is that you, the ones that we won before? It is. But for everyone, you know, if you haven't voted, mm. and there are, there are some I understand that haven't. What, people with no internet? There's still plenty of time to vote in the listener's choice category. And you go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. So that's all one word, britishpodcastawards, all lowercase, all one word, <laughs> dot com slash vote. Now, I don't want this to sound too desperate, but I'm all I'm saying is, it's the, I'm saying this as a public service information piece. It's there if you want to take part. You search. For, Are, could, could they vote for other people? No. <laughs> you search for Kermit and Mayer's Film Review. You don't search for Wittertainment because that won't work. Because that's not actually the name of the show. You enter your name and email address. You tick the box if you'd like the chance to win some tickets to the ceremony. And then you press submit. Okay. You will submit. And what you will do is you will go to BritishPodcastAwards.com slash vote. It's very, very straightforward. Good luck, everybody. Uh, so it's six minutes past three, so we're going to talk about uh, Avengers Infinity War. Yeah. I just say before you do your review... Yes. Uh, ..that we were going to have Tom Holland on the show, uh, which we're all looking forward to, and yeah. it would uh, be very exciting to talk to him. Um, but then it was decided that they wouldn't show us the whole movie. They were just going to show us a 30-minute cut-down of the film. Right. And this, is, this has come up once before... 
when Blade Runner 2049 came along and they weren't going to show us the whole movie for that. So we declined uh, the guest because uh, our, our position, which it will be um, now and in the future, is that if we can't see the film, then we don't do the interview, yeah. which seems uh, a sensible. Well, it's just a policy, isn't it? Uh, yeah, other shows can do things any yeah. way they like, but anyway, that's what we decided to So that's why we, had, we yeah. don't have uh, Tom Holland on, but we look forward to having him on at some stage in the future for some other project. Meantime, on with the Avengers Infinity War. Okay, so Avengers Infinity War... You've seen, I, you have seen all of it, obviously, to say. Yes, no, absolutely. Yes, I saw all of it on Tuesday night, which I think was the, I think was the first screening. I saw it in the IMAX cinema in Leicester Square. Wow, splendid. Yeah, very good. So... Um, I will try. I will try very hard to not do any spoilers. At the beginning of the film, um, they had a, a, a great big thing about saying, "Please don't do any spoilers," because people who want to see this film want to see it exactly as you're seeing it, not knowing anything about it. So, in order to do that, I will just tell you the basic setup, and I'll try and avoid sort of specific plot points beyond that. Okay. Obviously, if you want to know nothing at all, then see the film first and listen to this. But I will go out of my way not to, to do anything spoiling. So, Avengers: Infinity War. Um, essentially, uh, Thanos, who is the uh, uh, this evil tyrant who is hellbent on a mission to destroy half of all the life uh, in the universe, and to do this, he needs to gather together the Infinity Stones, which were sort of there at the beginning of the Big Bang and being scattered around. He has uh, he has a, a glove into which the Infinity Stones will be fitted, and these will enable his powers. And in order to stop him a huge range of characters from uh, from, from different, you know, uh, from the universe, but from different movies that we've seen, all must put aside their differences and come together to stop him in his quest. I think that's pretty much what I'll say about the plot. Here's a clip. Tell me his name again. Thanos. He's a plague, Tony. He invades planets. He takes what he wants. He wipes out half the population. He sent Loki. The attack on New York. That's him. This is it. What's our timeline? No telling. He has the power in space stones. That already makes him the strongest creature in the whole universe. If he gets his hands on all six stones, Tony... He could destroy life on a scale hitherto undreamt of. So, there we go. Um, so, a bit like Lord of the Rings, really. <laughs> okay. The first thing to say is that... It, everything about this movie is absolutely enormous, from the size of its cast to the sort of, you know, the breadth of the canvas upon which it's playing out, to the the size of, of the, you know, the conflicts and the battles, to the scope of what's at stake. And also, it has to be said, to the length of its running time and the projections uh, of its uh, box office. Um, it's directed by the Russos, who I think do a pretty good job of taking something in which you have such, a, you know, a vast expanse and reining things in. Uh, and making sure that what you have all the way through are elements that you can follow, elements that you can connect with, story elements that that, that will make sense. Now, the first thing to say is that I think it is it's important to understand that there are two. There will be two different responses to the film. One of them will be from people who are absolutely fans of the world, of the universe, and of the characters, and the other one will be from people who aren't. And we've talked before about whether or not. You think a movie has to uh, accommodate both kinds of, of audience. And I think that one of the things that is both a strength and a weakness of Avengers Infinity War is that it does play, as far as I can tell, most strongly towards the fans, towards the devotees. I came out of the movie 
And afterwards, I had a conversation with Jack Howard, who's a fellow film critic, much younger than me, um, and uh, Dean and, and his friends. And they all really, really liked it. They had really, really enjoyed it. And I've had a similar response from my teenager who grew up with the Avengers movies and has a huge amount invested in them and, 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 and really, really enjoyed them. And I think that they're, that what they like about it is that, firstly, it's it's taking the world seriously. It's taking the story seriously. It's taking the elements seriously. There is a lot of humour. I mean, as there always has been in the, you know, in, in in the Marvel films, you do get a lot of nice interplay between, you know, Iron Man and Spider Man, and uh, between Star Lord and you know, you get you get this kind of that sort of bickering that they do in between the action because and that stuff always works very well, particularly in the stuff with Spider Man and uh, an Iron Man. That's the stuff that I've always sort of really liked in this universe. You do get that, but you also get a sense that. There is a serious, huge, big thing happening towards which we are all kind of moving. So you do get that sort of sense of seriousness. However, I did feel that when we came out of the movie that we had had very different experiences of it. One of the comparisons may be to, if you think about a film like, you know, uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, or, or you, you think about movies which sort of divided audiences, um, what became clear is that although we we both thought the same things about the film were interesting and admirable, our our emotional responses were very very different. Those the people who were real fans of the, of the universe had completely bought into it and had really and there were several moments in it in the screening that I saw in which people whooped and cheered and gasped and were really properly emotionally engaged. And I know this wasn't just at the screening that I saw, because I, have a, I know for a fact that at a screening last night in Southampton, an audience, a paying audience, did exactly the same thing. So I know that it's a film that is working with its audience. I have a very different experience of it, in that I really did feel that I was watching a film in which what I wasn't was emotionally engaged in the way that the core audience would be. And as a result of that... I ended up seeing a lot of things, a lot more things that I found problematic than they did. And I think it's really important to say, particularly when you're talking about this kind of genre of film, that so much of it is to do with where you're coming from in terms of, you know, your relationship to, to the characters, your relationship to the franchise. That is a really big part of it. So the first thing is, I think as part of the world and as part of the franchise, it is clearly, it's done a really good job. It's done that job really well. I mean, it's, it's brought together an extraordinary number of elements and it's put them together in a film which is very long. I know to that core audience didn't feel long and has very clear thrillers, takes risks that they didn't expect, does things that they did expect and did want, but also twists and subverts them in ways that they didn't, thrilled them, excited them, you know, worked as a film. I had the following reservations about it. The first one is that tonally, I felt that sometimes the jumping between the light and dark felt a little bit like channel hopping. It felt like I was kind of flipping between different channels, which were working at different registers and occasionally the registers didn't work together. So the interplaying of the, of the quipping and the, underlying narrative sort of seemed to me to be at odds that said i do think in the central character of thanos that there is a, a really admirable sense not only of you know menace and all the rest of it but also they've managed to inject elements of pathos and things that you wouldn't necessarily expect from that kind of you know from that kind of character so the light and dark sometimes worked 
but not always for me. Secondly, whenever you have a story, a story which has this many stories going on, because essentially what you're not talking about is a group coming together. You're talking about lots of disparate groups coming together and then, you know, crisscrossing with each other. Whenever that happens, you always run the danger of losing the thread of one particular narrative or another. And I did feel that there were moments when, I, you know, we were checking in here, we were checking in there, in which the two things weren't, and I wasn't being emotionally carried through. The third one is more sort of complicated and it's to do with consequences. It's to do with one of the things that fantasy films always have to deal with is the seriousness of consequences. That if you have a, a fantasy movie, if you have a, a world in which you have a, you know, any form of alternate reality or any, anything that moves away from you know, physical, what, one of the things that the filmmakers have to do is to convince you that things that happen in this world have consequences, have irreversible consequences, because that's the kind of dramatic weight of any situation. And I think that's always a battle. I mean, it's interesting if I think, for example, about... I've just been making a television programme. This is slightly off the thing, but about time-travelling movies. And one of the things that we've talked about is La Jetée, which, of course, is the basis for 12 Monkeys. And one of the reasons I love La Jetée is that La Jetée is a movie about time travel, but it's actually a movie about the, the immutability of time. It's a movie that begins and returns to the same point. And what it is is that during its narrative, you just see that same point from a different perspective. You've seen 12 Monkeys, so you know the story because 12 Monkeys is a remake of La Jetée. Yeah, a long time ago. No, no, but you know, but you know it's, it's a film that begins and ends at a certain point. And I think it deals brilliantly with that idea that the, that the world that you're in may be flexible in ways that you wouldn't expect, but actually is inflexible. That, you know, that, that, and this is an idea that Kurt Vonnegut explored. And... Certainly when you're talking therefore about any fantasy universe, the thing that you have to do is you have to make it feel consequential. You have to make it feel like there are, there are great emotional and physical things at stake. And I have to say that I lost that. I didn't feel that. I, now, I know that, that that's, that's partly something which is sort of built into the DNA of the source material itself anyway. But I did feel myself, I was reminded of that, you know, the Ben Wheatley thing about what you actually want is the, you know, the dang of somebody getting their, their fingers trapped in a car door, something that is tangible and real and, 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 and definite, as opposed to great big larger things that may not be as consequential and may not be as, uh, you know, as hard and fast. The fourth one is this thing that I call the live aid factor. You may love Queen, you may love Status Quo, you may love David Bowie, but I guarantee you that you wouldn't go home and think, I'll put on the Live Aid DVD. What you'd do is you'd, you'd listen to your favourite Bowie album or your favourite Queen album. And it's, it's usually the case that if you have a number of elements, a number of characters brought together, the sum is actually, the thing is actually less than the sum of its parts. And there is always that. Now, I, I think that, in fact, one of the things that the film does quite well is it does manage to balance the fact that it's, you know, it's a, it's a super, you know, it's a super group assembly. There are so many different characters going on. But I do always have that feeling that for me, as an outsider to this, I mean, I've seen all the films, but I've never been that deeply emotionally uh, invested in them. I've always sort of preferred the single narrative, the smaller result, the the you know the the path less trodden as opposed to you know the huge race and then that brings me to the fifth thing which is the running time which is that because what I was lacking was that central whoosh that central rush of emotional engagement I did feel it's a it's a, it's a, it's an ex, it was an exhausting watch so to summarise I think 
I think for what it is, it's very good. I think it does what it does very well. And I think if you're a fan of those movies and if you're invested in those characters, you'll really be knocked out by it because I think you'll find that it, that it does things that you don't expect and I think you'll find that it takes risks that you don't expect and that, it, and that it, it's adventurous. And it's put, it is very, very well put together. I think if you're not, if you're outside of that world like me, and if you, if you lack that central emotional connection, you will, you will struggle with all of those things that I've said, which I hope that I've said without giving away any I don't, think you, I don't think you've given anything away. Okay, well, there we go. I think you've danced and the, the, the final thing I'd like to say is this. Yes. Blade Runner 2049 was a very long film, and I didn't think it was. Many people didn't like Blade Runner 2049. Many people thought Blade Runner 2049 was boring and slow and ponderous, and I didn't. So bear in mind... The reservations that you're getting are from somebody who watched Blade Runner 2049 and thought that, to me, is a movie that's the length it should be. And so, therefore, bear that in mind with any of the, the criticisms that I mean. That's where I come from. You know, I'm the guy who grew up with 2001 and Silent Running and Solaris and, you know, that, that, that sort of stuff. And I'm the guy who thought that Blade Runner 2049 was exactly right and the other thing that's interesting about that, you know, sometimes I get criticised, people say, oh, well, you know, you only like films because they politically agree with you. Well, in the case of this, it's, that's completely the opposite is true. I mean, the, as we've had known from, the, from all the, uh, the correspondence, the, the politics of Blade Runner 2049 are much more problematic. But it's a, it's a film that, that works, that resonates with me in a way that this didn't. But that is more, I think, to do with the disconnect between me and it than anything else. If you're a fan... It's the movie that you want. But does that make it your fault or its fault? It's not a fault. It's a. It, what I'm trying to do is, is the to, problem with you. What I'm, or is the problem with no? I don't think there is a problem. I think what I'm trying to do is to honestly describe the experience of seeing it because it would be very easy to say, "Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was really great fun." I didn't, but that doesn't mean that that I don't that I'm not aware that for its core audience it absolutely works and it does do things that are unexpected. Simon Rutstein uh, leading the emails here. Simon and Mark, my 10-year-old son and I went to see this eagerly awaited film last night. To say he was excited is an understatement and has been talking about nothing else for weeks. It's hard to comment on this film without spoilers, but I'll do my best. This film did not disappoint either of us in the least, given the size of the cast. It didn't feel overwhelming, with each grouping getting a decent section of storyline. There were plenty of gags which went down well alongside the serious stuff. Josh Brolin was excellent as Thanos, and I couldn't help but like him a little bit. There was real. But that's could I just say that's that is kind of the point I was leading to when I said that there is pathos in that character as well, which which is something that often doesn't happen in those circumstances with that kind of character. A complete contrast to the awful baddie Steppenwolf in Justice League and the ending. <laughs> well, we're still in shock. How to avoid discussing careful, careful, this? Careful, 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 yeah. Yeah. Trust me on this sentence. No, no, sorry, sorry. I'm... How to avoid discussing this? I'm not sure. Feel free to remove. There you go. Okay. But all he said is, well, what an ending. Um, Andy O'Donnell had the genuine pleasure of catching, uh, he says, AIW, but I don't think that's much of a As nobody is called. Last it. night, and I'd love to write an articulate, entertaining email about my experience, but I feel quite punch drunk from it all. Basically, on paper, it should have been messy and disjointed, but they simply nailed it. Every character gets their moment in the sun. Thanos is a genuinely intimidating, oddly sympathetic and engaging villain. And I'm catching once myself... Again, once again, you know, a well-made point. I'm catching myself grinning, recalling certain moments in the film. As soon as I get the chance, there will be repeated cinema trips to watch this again and again. 
Thomas Morrissey says, ever since the massively successful experiment in shared universe building that was the original Avengers, it has felt somewhat like Marvel has been cruising along at the same level. Although there have been plenty of excellent films in the meantime, nothing has really matched the relative scope and ambition of that first Avengers film, best encapsulated by the somewhat disappointingly formulaic Age of Ultron. Infinity War feels like that game-changer and Marvel upping a gear, showcasing a level of ambition in terms of scope of story and characters only seen before in adaptations of epic fantasy such as Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Which is interesting that you made that Lord of the Rings comparison. In fact, several times the film put me in mind of Return of the King. In terms of what is purely cinematic narrative, based, of course, on decades of comics, the sheer scale of the film is surely unique. Despite a runtime of two hours and 40 minutes, the film... Sorry, say, say that again with that... Two hours that, and 40 minutes. minutes. The film rarely drags due to a breakneck pace that never lets up. There is none of the dull opening exposition and setup that often hurts these films. On the downside, this is likely to leave those who aren't caught up in the series somewhat lost. While it is not essential to have seen every single Marvel film, it is probably important to have seen a large proportion of them. Once again, I think echoing the, the point that I'd made that it's a, that there is a different experience. And incidentally, I don't have any problem. What? Why are you? I'm, I'm just making eyes at Robin. It's all right. You carry on. Yeah, but why? Because it's an off-air moment, not for broadcast. Carry on. All right. Um, well, I'm not going to say it now. What? Because I was looking at Robin and not you. I'll look at you. you. I promise I'll look at you from now on that there is nothing wrong with making this kind of movie for the fan audience because heaven knows that's what Blade Runner did and I loved Blade Runner. Uh, Emma on this email was a little overwhelmed by it all, to be honest. Story flitted too much and there was little time for character development or any conversation, more than a few one-liners. The ending left me... And the post credit <laughs> scene was only hey, hey, hey. because of the seated next to me. Well, we all know about. I haven't seen it. No, 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 no. I, I know, seen I know. It. but no. obviously everyone knows. You stated. I know, I know. Right? No, yes, and 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 of course, that is one of the, one of the things that I have really come to enjoy about this film is the idea that everyone has to sit through the credits. And because when it's a special effects heavy movie, it takes forever. Visual effects. I'm sorry. When it's a visual effects heavy movie, I just corrected myself. Sorry, but I did correct myself. The there are several credits. Deborah Mansky. Hello. On the bad side, there are a couple of moments early in the film when I thought the visual effects. Looked very suspect. Well done. Jarred with me. Also, I'm not a huge fan of the Russo brothers and felt they leaned too heavily on style and design elements from previous films, making some of the original pieces for this film look very bland to me. Also, this is the culmination of a very big and long story and I would defy anyone to go in who hasn't seen a Marvel movie and be able to follow it. Having said that, the audacity of the narrative is astonishing. The penultimate chapter in a story that began a decade ago and it really should be applauded. I think the pacing is brilliant and at two and a half hours running time, it's relentless and exciting. It really felt like a roller coaster to me. I highly recommend limited fluids and a toilet stop before entering the cinema. Thank you, Deborah, for for thinking of that. Jeannie Hutchinson, BSC. So, can I mention something quickly on that? Which is that I, when I saw it in the in the preview screen, because the the preview screening they always run late, and it's meant to start at seven o'clock, and there is that thing about you know it's it's two hours forty something, and so what you need to do is to go to the loo at the last possible moment, and that that's like judging when the last possible moment because because the, there is not one moment in this film that you could adequately go off to the loo and come back without having missed something significant. Okay, so uh, with those warnings in place, Jeannie Hutchinson, BSc in Cell and Molecular Biology, uh, she says, uh, there was 
Two and a half hours of disaster porn punctuated by occasional clever dialogue. The stakes are high, the landscape bleak, there are plenty of cheesy contrivances, no character development, zero resolution. I honestly think we'd all be better off not seeing this one in the theatre. Don't reward Marvel for milking the cash cow without giving some narrative value, quid pro quo. I urge my fellow listeners to avoid this one for now. Wait and watch Infinity War on the digital media service of your choice just before the sequel is released. That way you can immediately wash out the hollow, acrid taste this film leaves in your mouth with the questionable refreshment of the the inevitable retcon. The thing is, uh, the thing is that that saying don't go and see it in the cinema is actually that's no good. No, because because one of the things that that is a a point of the pleasure. I mean, as I said, I saw it in this, you know, this great big IMAX screen. And of course, it's shot in that, you know, it's for that format. It's designed for that. Um, is the thing about spectacle. And particularly when you're talking about uh, about this kind of movie, it is one of the occasions in which the, you do need to see it in the cinema. You do need to see it on a, on a, on a great big, you know, on a great... Because that's... But, I mean, I, when I saw Blade Runner 2049, that I saw it in... Or did I see it in the... Did I see that in the BFI IMAX? And the first time when I came out of it, part of what I was thinking was... <gasps> You know, just the, just the sheer scope, just the sheer thing, and that's one of the things about fantasy and science fiction cinema. And let's not pretend that that isn't part of it. Well, and what's retcon? No idea. Okay, thanks. I thought you might be able to explain. Um, Matt from Sunderland. I've just got home from a midnight showing of Avengers: Infinity War in glorious IMAX 3D, and I'm speechless. The whole theatre was speechless. This is the movie event of a generation with so much hype and expectation and it didn't disappoint, exclamation mark. It's incredible, exclamation mark. Infinity War is an amazing achievement on every level that had me gripped with relentless pace from beginning to end. With so many characters, a massive universe and a brand new mega villain, the film had so much to do in just under two and a half hours and it's simply stunning how exciting, coherent and emotional it was, especially compared to so much less complex uh, films that by contrast seem to fail on every level. My friends and I saw Infinity War in a luxury cinema with reclining leather seats and we paid a pretty uh, pretty price for it too but i can honestly say i can't remember a film that's earned my ticket money more i am definitely going to see it at least one or two more times on the big screen and can't wait to do it all again with avengers avengers 4 next year um and that's from matt so matt retro matt is saying the complete opposite of our preview which is saying go big if you can afford it go big go go to the biggest cinema that you can with the best sounds let me read this to you retroactive continuity or retcon for short, is a literary device in which established facts in a fictional work are ignored, adjusted or contradicted by subsequently published works which break continuity with the former. Thank you very much for explaining uh, that. Let's do this from John Rowan. Uh, Just briefly, I caught an opening night showing of Infinity War on Wednesday when it was released in Belgium. I thought it was a great success, helped by a couple of bold narrative choices. Firstly, the main character arc of the film is really unexpected and this helps mitigate, even if it doesn't solve, the fundamental structural problem of the number of characters which the film has to grapple with. Secondly, events early on in the film mean that all of the action sequences contain a real sense of jeopardy. You genuinely do not know if a given character is going to survive a particular sequence. Two caveats. The problem of dealing with so many characters is mitigated but not eliminated. If you haven't seen a considerable number of the previous films, I'm not really sure how much you're going to get out of this one. Yeah, although it's it's fundamentally not playing to that audience. It's assuming, and quite rightly so that the audience have seen those. And it's like, we, we've done other films before, which we've, we've, we've said, you know, 
if you haven't seen the previous ones, I mean, the same is true of the Harry Potters. If you got to Deathly Hallows and you hadn't seen the others, just don't start here. Uh, can I just, just one briefly, because news and sport are imminent, but are back, not is back. Uh, can we just, the bold narrative, do you agree with the fact that the narrative is surprised? A number of correspondents are saying very bold, very surprising. Okay, you know, so what I said was that for the peop- for, for the audience for whom it was working, and by that I include, you know, Jack and his friends and, and my son, there were there were risks that it took that they that they found very very you know uh, very audacious. My and I think they were, except that my problem was, as I as I attempted to explain, um, that you have to go within a fantasy narrative, you have to establish the principle of consequence, and I felt that that was lacking enough to take the edge off the risks. TV movie of the week. Here we go with some suggestions and then we'll find out what Mark picks. Michael Hill says, Mark will probably choose the overrated Crimson Peak, which is Del Toro at his most excessive and the biggest disappointment I've recently seen, with the exception of Mia Vasikovska, Hamily acted, predictable and unforgivably boring. I'm going for Wild Tales because I had so much and missed it at the cinema. Always looking for something new to watch. Uh, Neil Scandrit, it's got to be Taxi Driver. It's a shame that there are people in the world who only know De Niro from his recent and awful films. There was a time when he was one of the most respected actors in the world, from Heat to Goodfellas, Raging Bull to Casino, a film grittier than a gravel sandwich, and in its day so violent it shocked audiences everywhere. Grittier than a gravel sandwich, there's there's a phrase. I'd like to have been there when Mr De Niro said to himself, I think I'm going to give comedy a try. I can (laughs) slap him into his senses and yell, No, Bob, for the love of God, don't do it. Anyway, TV movie of the week is The Mist, which is uh, Sunday at nine o'clock on the Horror Channel, and this is a Frank Darabont film that caught everyone off guard. Uh, It took very, very. I had a. uh, I remember having a conversation uh, later on with uh, Darabont about it. He was basically told that you know if if he changed the ending, uh, the film would have made. Why are you shaking your head? Just, just don't watch this. Why? Well, because it's so bleak. It is. It's, it's so grim. Than, it's, I mean, only feel as if it's you feel... bleaker than a very bleak thing. So positive. And every, if everything <laughs> in your life is going well, then maybe you can watch this. But it has the most uh, depressing and sense of nihilism at the end. You just go, oh. So if there's anything that's wrong in your life at all, don't watch Don't watch film. the Horror Channel at 9pm on Sunday. But if what you want is... I mean, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, Avengers, Infinity War you know, taking risks and all that sort of stuff. The Mist is a film which yeah. begins at a point of no hope and goes downhill from there. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Uh, t- uh, let's, what have we got? Um, uh, we've got Jean-Claude Van Damme, Legionnaire, Daddy Day Camp, Nonstop, Grown Ups 2 and Yogi Bear. Matthew Reynolds, Yogi Bear failed the, the laugh test but it had six and a half smiles, as did Legionnaire, with a couple of hearty, if unintentional, guffaws. Grown Ups 2 brings the rage, the fury, the cold, clammy hand of what am I doing with my life watching this? Grown Ups 2 is a horrible film and your life will be worse if you endure it. Uh, Paul John Rowland, this is a properly awful list. <laughs> question whether, awful. whether humanity should be allowed to continue. I guess Grown Ups 2 edges it simply because, as a sequel, there really is no excuse. And Russell Hewitt, I would rather order teeth from eBay than watch any of them. Oh, go on then, Legionnaire. What is the TV movie of the week so bad it's bad? I'm going to go for Grown Ups 2, because Grown Ups 1 was, was enough. But Grown Ups 2, seriously. When can I not watch that one? You when? cannot watch that at Saturday on Five Star. 
And that's a thing. Weren't they a hit pop? They were. No, they absolutely were. But now they're a channel. We are a channel. <laughs> now that they're from hit pop stardom to now being a channel showing Grown Ups 2 at 9 p.m. on they? Saturday. It's 20 to 4. If you're enjoying the show but can't help wishing it was presented in listed video form, which everybody who bumps into me says, I wish it was. Uh, do, they, not, do people come up to you and say... All this week, they've been saying, I love the show, but if only it was presented in listed video form. In retcon form. That's right. Anyway, so your prayers have been answered by The Witter List, which is our weekly article featuring highlights from the show. You can find this week's Witter List later today on the BBC homepage, bbc.co.uk, uh, or you can find every Witter List so far on our homepage, which is bbc.co.uk slash Wittertainment. That is the end of the corporate read, and here comes a film review. Okay, so uh, Beast... And this is a film that I could really get my teeth into and that I, you know, <laughs> and spoke to me and worked. So Beast, it's uh, directed by Michael Pierce. It is set on uh, Jersey and it stars Jesse Buckley and Johnny Flynn, both of whom I have to say are completely terrific. Jesse Buckley plays Mole, who is um, a young woman. She's uh, 20-something and she's still basically at home under the thumb of her mother, brilliantly played by Geraldine James in very, very sort of scary form. But also, you know, we were talking before about that idea of having a character who is, you know, scary and dangerous, but also has an element of pathos. You get the sense that there is something of, there is a sense of fear in the amount of control that Geraldine James's character has over Jesse Buckley's character of Mole. Anyway, Along, uh, there's a birthday party, and the birthday party is nominally for Mole, but she is immediately uh, upstaged by her siblings. And you, there's a lovely scene in which you, you realise that she's very much a supporting player in her own life, that she is not centre stage in her own life, that she's been pushed to the edges, that she's, where, wherever she goes, she's, she's sort of she's suppressed. So she decides to jump she decides to skip so she goes off she leaves her own birthday party and she goes off into jersey and she goes to a nightclub and the nightclub is kind of slightly drunken experience in which she meets a man who's not so great but then she meets this character pascal played by johnny flynn who is basically a woodsman there's a little touch of heathcliff about him or a little touch of you know mellers um he is Everything that her home life isn't. He's, he has a slightly vagabond element to him. He's carrying a rifle. He appears to be a poacher. And she immediately sees in him something which connects with her. Needless to say, when she goes home, her mother is less than impressed. You're safe. I was worried sick. What happened? I am. Um, come here. I won't bite. I felt funny, so I went for a walk. And I fell asleep on the beach. I thought we were best friends. We yeah. are. Then don't lie to me. I just wanted to go dancing. I put all that effort into making it special and you wanted to go dancing. So sorry. Mom, it was irresponsible and thoughtless. You've come so far, Mole. I worry when things like this happen. But... It won't happen. Again, I promise. It was your birthday. We'll let this one go. Eat your cake. One of the things I really like about that scene is it's the little indications of things which are important. You've come so far, Mole. Later on, someone says to Johnny Flynn's character, Pascal, oh, Mole's a wild one, and everyone doesn't say anything. So there's something in her past. There's something that's happened that will start to be revealed during the course of the narrative. The key thing is that she sees in Pascal 
this kindred spirit. Meanwhile, the island is being haunted by a spate of assaults. They've just found another body. And the finger of suspicion is starting to point towards outsiders and is starting to point in the direction of, of, of Pascal. But no matter what anybody says about him, she's not having it. Why? Because she loves him and she'll defend him because he's somehow bamboozled her about who he is. There's a line where somebody says, he can't love. He, he's, you know, he's just using you. He, he doesn't understand what love is. Or is it because she sees in him something that she sees in herself and that, in fact, they are both two sides of the same coin? When they very first, when they met for the first time, she's cut her hand on broken glass. And he says, very significantly, he says, you're wounded. I can fix that. And that is a sort of the key to their relationship. What the film then does, and I think it does it rather brilliantly, is to play with the audience's expectations as to what each of these characters are. I mean, on the one hand, you know, Pascal is this this wild character. He seems to have a very dark past. Everybody looks at him suspiciously. There is reason to believe that he is not what he appears to be, and yet maybe that's just everybody's suspicions. In the case of her, she seems to come from this incredibly conservative, uh, cloistered environment. She appears to have never had a life outside of the house, but maybe there is something about her that's, that's not quite as innocent. And what I really liked about the film is, it on the one hand, it has its feet in the ground. It has a very sort of earthy quality. There's a lovely sequence in which when she's been out, she comes back and she's got dirt under her fingernails and she scrapes her fingernails along this cream-coloured couch and it leaves these sort of mud traces, which says such a lot about the character. But it has a sort of fa fairy tale line to it. I mean, on the one hand, she's the princess in the tower who's rescued from the tower and taken off by her prince. On the other hand, you know, the title is Beast. Maybe he is Beast. And the title, which is deliberately ambiguous because you don't know to whom the title refers. Does it necessarily refer to him? Maybe it refers to her. Maybe it refers to something else that's just stalking the island. Also, it refers simultaneously to Beauty and the Beast. And I thought to Valerian Borovchik's Beast, La Bette, um, which again is that sort of version of that fairy story, but turned upside down and turned into a very sort of controversially erotic film, which incidentally was banned forever and ever in the 1970s when it first came out. There are also hints of Archipelago, the Joanna Hogg film, um, which starred Tom Hiddleston, you know, before Tom Hiddleston was, you know, this huge international star that he now is, about families going mad on small islands and Tonally, it reminded me a little bit of... There's a Francois Ozo film from the 90s called uh, See the Sea, Regard La Mer, which does this brilliant thing of contrasting bright island sunshine with this kind of dark, duplicitous, dangerous, murderous theme that's going on underneath. And it does this really, really sort of nice juxtaposition of, you know, external beauty and internal darkness. And the most... I think the most intriguing thing about it, do you remember when you interviewed Rachel Weiss for My Cousin Rachel? Uh, yes, I do. And she said a brilliant thing. She said, you asked her whether, whether she thought that Rachel was, was guilty or not. And she said that what she'd done is that she'd made a decision as to whether Rachel was guilty. And she was going to tell the director, and Roger Michelle, and he said, keep it to yourself. Just keep it to yourself and just play, you know, play the character like that. And there's a lot of that in what Johnny Flynn does. And in fact, I read an interview in which he pretty much did something similar, that he made a decision about his own character and then he that's how he played it. 
And the way in which the film is directed, it's very difficult to keep those balancing acts on track. And I think one of the things I really liked about My Cousin Rachel is you get to the end of it and did she, didn't she? All the way through um, Beast, what the film is asking you to do is to make up your own mind about what's happening. I mean, and it's a really clever balancing act and it's done, it's really, really well done. So I thought it had real fairy tale charm and appeal and weirdness. It's very twisted. I thought the two central performances had real chemistry, real spark. I thought it was very boldly directed, very confidently directed and written. Had a and the interior is done in Surrey and the exterior is done in Jersey, but it had a real sort of sense of its place, of its location. And I came out of it and thought that was a really satisfyingly, you know, twisted psychodrama with, you know, lusty emotions and I say and it managed I say that's that's Hugh Grant in um uh is it layer of the white worm? I say, um, and uh, and it manages that balancing act that all the way through it's playing with your you know with your allegiances and playing with your expectations, and you're looking at these two characters, and you're seeing the world through her eyes, but she is also an unreliable cinematic narrator. I'm not narrating her own life, but you're seeing it through her eyes, but her own eyes are not necessarily reliable. I thought it was really good. I was really impressed. A couple of emails, and then we'll, uh, I'll save some of the rest for, okay. the, for the podcast later. Uh, Joe Marcantonio saw Beast at London Film Festival last year. Quick comment. It's very rare I see a film in which a single performance completely bowls me over, but that is what Jessie Buckley managed to do in this film. Yeah, she's I thought great, she was beyond brilliant. Though it was a fantastic debut from Michael Pierce, but it was the central performance that has really stayed with me. Anna Nixon, I caught a preview of Beast. So glad I did. It was captivating throughout as the characters and experiences of the people involved are revealed, slowly bringing revelations right to the end. It's a whodunit crossed with a romance. You don't know who to trust. You can't help but hope for a happy ever after. Identifying who the Beast of the title is is obviously the debate. There we go. A tough watch, but worth it. Despite the beautiful surroundings, if I had to pick a film to live in, I'd definitely go for post-war Guernsey in T-Glaps <laughs> over beast-filled Jersey. Jersey yeah. Anyway, so that's an interesting point. We'll do some more in the podcast. What else is out? Okay, The Wound, which is a um, very interesting film, directed by John Trengrove, um, South African films about the... It's a strangely subversive drama about circumcision and manhood rituals amidst the Xosa, hang on, Xosa community. Um, I, I'm, my pronunciations are always terrible. Koza. No, but it's X H. Yes, and it's, so it has a click. But it's a click. I, I, I don't think you're expected to say Kosa with a with a click unless you are indeed Kosa. So yourself. just do it again for so just Kosa. I think Kosa is exactly. Okay, thank you for getting me out of that particular thing. So central character Kwanda, who is a young man from Johannesburg, he's been sent by his father to take part in a traditional ritual whereby the men are sent out to live in huts they each one is given a carer there is the circumcision ritual after which they have to live in the hut while they heal and during the course of this they are meant to become men they're meant to be a journey to manhood in which they you know, they learn what it takes to be a man Kwanda's father says very clearly on very clearly early on i want you to be tough on my son suggesting that he thinks that somehow his city life has, uh, you know, made him too soft. Too soft is the phrase that he uses. But it's also clear that he wants him to become a man in the traditional sense of the word. And very much what the movie is about is what that means. His care, it then turns out, is someone who is also deep, is kind of deeply conflicted about his own masculinity. He's been having a relationship with another man, Vijay, who is 
also has a wife and kids, and yet their relationship only ever comes together during these annual rituals, which are off on a remote mountain. Kwanda is much more at home with his own sexuality, is increasingly dis- disenchanted with the, the sort of the macho rituals himself. At one point, he says to the carer, you want me to stand up and be a man, but you can't do it yourself. So what it is, is on the one hand, it's a coming of age story, although the, the characters of the coming of age are not necessarily the young character. On the other hand, it's uh, it's a film which has caused controversy. There was some controversy when it first came when it was first played at the cinema circuit about oh this is a you know white director coming in and making this film about a, a culture which you know which is not their culture. The script, however, is co-written by Tando Mozana, who wrote this book um who wrote a man is not a man which provided the inspiration and she also you know was uh, also worked on the script itself and i thought the script seemed to be very well researched very adventurous and very balanced i mean what you're getting is this sort of i know that some people have made the kind of you know broke back mountain comparison but what you get is this story which is essentially about what it means to you know to be a man and what that what that sort of idea of manliness and the way in which it's it's it mutates the way in which it changes the way in which it doesn't mean what you expect it to mean and what it really means to accept yourself to not have to hide behind some other character and i thought what was what was really fascinating about it was that when when you consider that the world in which this is that this is taking place is you know very very far removed from the world with, with which I'm familiar, and yet the themes that it's dealing with are very very universal. And it, it, there is something about there's a real talent in making a movie about a very specific circumstance, a very specific milieu, but giving the audience the sense that while they're watching it, on the one hand they're getting a, an insight into a world that they may not have known about, but also what they're watching is a story that has real universal appeal. It's about, you know, it's about love and, you know, sexuality and tenderness and all those things. But it's also about that sort of burden of expectation and what it means to be a man coming of age. I thought it was very well done. It's called The Wound. It's got quite a wide release. I mean, obviously not as wide as Avengers Infinity War, but it is well worth checking out. Okay, it's uh, five minutes to four. Drive on the way. Can you... Yeah, I'll do a couple. So D Minor, which is this documentary about Fakir Bakawi, who was a Kurdish colonel who became fearlessly zealous about bomb disposal in Iraq. If you saw Hurt Locker, you'll be familiar with that image of Jeremy Renner walking towards a, a mine wearing, you know, the, the yes. full body armor. Very striking image. Yeah, and that really but what we have here, and this is a documentary that uses on the one hand footage that he arranged to be taken himself and then later on footage that was taken by the filmmakers of this extraordinary man just basically going in and defusing bombs, digging up landmines with an apparent disregard for his own safety. No safety gear, nothing like that. Literally digging up landmines with a shovel or with a pickaxe, going toward cars when everyone's saying, stay away, stay away, stay away. Because No, because he had decided that it was his mission. This is what he wanted. We, we, we actually see on film him diffusing the first explosive device that he finds. And, um, you know, the very first time that he does it. And he then becomes completely, com- completely convinced that this, this is what he's in. At one point, he's because we see the film from the point of view of his son. And um, at one point, there's this question of, you know, stay home, be safe with the family. And he says, for me, if any child is in danger, that child is part of my family and this is what I must do. Um, it's a, it's a, 
it's a really sort of it's a strange watch. I mean, on the one hand, at, at regular intervals, the footage includes explosions that then result in injury and uh, coma and hospitalization and worse. And there has been some sort of debate about whether or not the film becomes, you know, voyeuristic. My own feeling is that I came away from it thinking this is an extraordinary story um, of somebody just doing something which, I mean, it's it's a terrifying watch. It's really because while you're watching this footage play out, it is somebody diffusing explosive devices in a way which appears to be incredibly dangerous and we are regularly reminded is incredibly dangerous so i thought it was a very a very engrossing piece of work and a a very engrossing portrait of an extraordinary person but bear in mind you know obviously it is it is disturbing and it is upsetting and it is it's got that kind of real sort of visceral reality to it the other film not a lot of family entertainment in this half hour mark (laughs) well i just told you about beast it didn't sound like family entertainment. Avengers Infinity War is in cinemas now. Okay, that'll do. Um, another news story, filmed by Auburn Woz, which is a film about... On the one hand, it's a film about the migrant crisis, but it is also a film which which sets out to turn its gaze away from that towards those covering the story. There is a sequence in it in which he's interviewing... Basically, what's happening is they are they're investigating how the stories are covered and what that does to the people who are covering the stories. And we see a, uh, a news reporter and she says, you know, don't point your cameras at us, point them at the immigrants. Okay, why are you, why are you doing this? Point them at the migrants, because it, that's the story that you should be telling. And this does that to some extent. It covers this horrendous journey from arrival by sea, travelling on foot towards Germany, going across entire countries, borders being closed, police clampdowns, carrying children, carrying all their belongings. I mean, the sheer level of human suffering is absolutely astonishing. Images of trains stuffed with people that look like images of World War II. I mean, more than one journalist says it's it's like we're covering a you know a, a, another world war another one who says we're told all the time get the human story get the human story get the human story it's like we're eating human stories and it does have it so it attempts to balance on the one hand the sort of frontline footage of that human tragedy so and on the other hand the story of the news journalists covering the story. I have to say, I think it's stronger on the former. Although it, so there's quotes in the poster saying it will ignite um, a debate about the ethics of journalism. And there is at some point a sort of a debate about, you know, whether or not images of, you know, drowned children are are in the end going to do something that's going to change this terrible situation it, i think it is actually a, a, much stronger on its just first-hand frontline ironically enough human story of people facing insurmountable odds i mean insurmountable odds and making a journey which is just awesome what's it called uh, it's called another new story uh, so standing by for tony and rachel on drive what is our movie of the week please our movie of the week is Beast. See, now I didn't even, we hadn't chatted about it, but I just knew it was going to be Beast. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, Amy Schumer talks I Feel Pretty, the podcast available shortly. Now it's Drive. See, at the end of, uh, just the beginning of Drive there, Tony Tony Livesey said, Abba have. Yes, and he was correct. He was correct. I know. In the space, I feel as though we've changed the course of the news. Well, no, just the news. We retconned it. 
Because by the time, you know, when we started, it was ABBA singular, and now it's clearly ABBA plural. <laughs> they said, have you heard them on that film review show? They've been complaining about our grammar, and they're not even educated. Peter Milton Keynes, probably Peter in Milton Keynes, but it just says Peter Milton Keynes, because you were talking about Five Star. Yes. The channel. Yes. Is Five Star is a channel, or is that Five Star are oh, a channel? Okay. Well, Five Star are yeah. a band, but that, that highlights that very well. So Five Star are a band, but Five Star is, is a, a channel. channel. Correct? Yeah, that sounds... I mean, that sounds right to me. The Rolling Stones are... Yes. Because they're, they're, you know, but the the, although the the actually was only him, wasn't it? Well, the the, uh, well... um, Yeah, you see, now, is it the the have reformed? Because that would just be Matt, what's his name? Wasn't the the only him anyway? Essentially. Scritti Politti... Mm. Uh, he, well, I mean, that was Green. He, I know there were other people involved, but it was Green. Outside was the band, wasn't he? Yes. Well, it, I suppose this is problematic if the band, if you appear to have a band name, but there's just one person in the band. Yes. Then maybe. So, yeah. So the Streets is back because the Streets was a bloke. Yes, it was. So there was. What was he called Mike Skinner? Mike Skinner. What is he called, Mike Skinner? He probably still is. Yes, it was Mike Skinner. Uh, so that's slightly more problematic. But when you know there's a band... I mean, I'd say ABBA... Oh, I mean, I would say that's definitely, uh, definitely, definitely, definitely... A, 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 yeah, we're right and everyone else is right. But, 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 I, but I understand that they are... That they Grammatically, they're correct because... Sorry. Right. ABBA is a thing. B- Benny, Bjorn, Agnetta and um, Anna Frid are... Back. As... ABBA. Which... And... <laughs> This is that game. That's it. That's right. Okay, you, go on then. <laughs> okay, Benny and Bjorn and Anafrid and Agnita are back because Abba are favourite to no Abba are favourite because no no you can't correct me I can say what I want no it has to be grammatically correct it is still correct okay because Abba are favourite you can't to no no that's you. You said a favorite. It's my word. It's my word. Wait. The game doesn't work if you correct me. But you can't just say shed. I'm changing direction of the sentence. It has to be grammatically correct. It doesn't. It's a game. All right. Do it again. Abba are back in Sweden. (laughs) Where they eat cabbage (laughs) all night. Okay, I can't keep Sorry, up with that, it. Okay. That's very good. Can, can, can I tell you that I had a conversation with... Um, do you remember... Yourself? No, I had, I had a conversation, conversation with myself. With no, no. Do you remember... I had a conversation do with... Do you remember? That, that doesn't September, make sense. September, that was what that was. Um, do you remember that some time ago... I'm the human jukebox. Some time ago, Simon Amstel mm-hmm. came in... Did a little bit of filming. He did a little bit of filming. And the little bit of filming was for a, for a film that he's making. Yes. And he wanted to film a sequence that had us in it. Yes. That he said almost certainly we wouldn't be used. We got paid a packet for We that, got right? paid a huge... That's how we set up the iWitter app. That's right. We just took that money to the bank. It was such and an said, advance. That's right. <laughs> Did your desk fall apart? I don't know what that was. Not me. Anyway. It's not me. Oh, no, it is me again. Yeah, it's a, it, look. What a surprise. I haven't... My feet were nowhere near it. All right? The poltergeist of studio whatever we're in has just kicked that thing off again. 
He's blaming his tools. I'm not blaming my tools. My feet weren't anywhere near it and it fell off. What size feet do you have? 14. You know that's the case. That's Um, Anyway, so... Do I remember? September... Yes. Do, 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 You've do, done that do, bit. You've done that bit. Can we please have that record now? Because do you remember? What do, do I remember? remember? Okay. Do you remember Simon Amstel came in and yes. we did that thing, yes. right? And we weren't going to be. It's almost but now we're in the film. Now, well, the no, 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 no. What? All I know is that at the Nick Lowe Fifty Years of Show Business party, which I was invited to, I know to which I was invited. Yes, um, I met somebody who was involved in that film who said they'd seen some of it. And we were in that some of it. We, we, now, that doesn't mean anything because no. between here and the final edit, who knows? But at the point at which they saw it, they hadn't. we hadn't yet hit the cutting room floor. It's just a matter of time. It is. It is just a matter of time. Good. Well, that was a, a witty anecdote. Thank you. I think... I don't want to do any more Beast. We've done Beast. We've said Beast is the movie of the week, and that's all a very, it's a very good thing. Mark's now holding up part of the studio, which he has destroyed. You will be invoiced for that. Absolutely, definitely. You're I didn't do it. it. Of course came you off. didn't. No, it didn't. just happens to be near there you. Is like, there is like a monster that lives under this desk, and when we're broadcasting, it pushes things over, and it makes you say things that makes you Makes me say things. Like, yes, that's why Robin has to do all that bird song. He had to bird song me earlier. Oh yes, he did. Yeah, yes, because of because only of, under because of your massive self promotion. Well, you tempted me towards a little bit of it. Did I? Yes, and I gave in under pressure. <laughs> anyway, um, I was led astray, sir. By the, what's it, it wasn't me, sir. I was led astray by the treachery of others. It was a golem, the studio golem. That's what it was, inspired by Eddie Marsan. Marsan. Yeah, we're gonna have to re-record the uh, that. The Saturday That's links. right, because we've already recorded the introduction of the Saturday Links with you saying Eddie Marsan's name wrong. Well, it was Eddie Marsan because we were told that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, and Marsan who, t- and who told us that? His His personal agent. assistant or someone like that. Anyway, somebody should have known. Somebody who's clearly never met him. So here comes now everyone's favourite. It's the DVD of the week. Hey, Mark. Hey, son. On this very day in 1646, Charles I of England left Oxford and travelled through enemy territory to arrive at the Scottish army camp at Southall, near Newark-on-Trent. Why, I hear you ask? Why? Well, I'm asking. Why? Why? Are you just repeating? Anyway, I want to know why. I'll tell you, military royalism was all but defeated, and in a matter of days, Oxford... And in a matter of days, Oxford... <laughs> the Royalist First English Civil War capital would fall to the new model army. Also, because Charles I of England didn't have a security guard named Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Ah, I wondered where this was going. Would, so was I. Oh, good, good. Who would have taken on the new model army single-handed? His majestic arched brow and 20-inch biceps enough to vanquish all 22,000 of them. All of which leads us to our choices for DVD of the week. One of which, you may have gathered by now, is Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So will that be Mark's choice of new release? Let's see what you think. Jonathan Lawson. I didn't want to see Jumanji, but my son cajoled me, and I loved it. It was hilarious, and like Thor Ragnarok, 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 Rock and Roll, <laughs> it was nice to be in a cinema full of laughter. Simeon Meadows, uh... Make that Simon Meadows. I... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I made you into an Old Testament prophet. <laughs> By the way, can I just say, I came across someone this week who has the most wonderful name of all time. Which is? Well, I just think this 
Well, this person is called Cinnamon Trundle. That is a great name. That has to be a character in a, in a novel, doesn't it? And what, what does Cinnamon Trundle do? Uh, works in PR, I think. But anyway, what a terrific name. So Cinnamon Trundle, I hope you're part of our collective here. Simon Meadows. I think Mark's oldie will be Gladiator, mainly as I've not seen most of the others, and his new one will be Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. But for me, it would be Hostiles. Excellent performances from Christian Bale, Rosamund Pike, and the always fantastic Wes Studi. And John Watson, I'd go for the king of the French vampires, Jean Rollin's Les Raisins de la Mort, The Grapes of Death in 1978. It brings back memories of going to France in the late 80s, looking for videos of the Jean Rollin films then and watching them in black and white without subtitles. He won't do that, I don't think. What's DVD of the week then? So the new DVD of the week is uh, Hostiles, Hostiles, which I, I really like it. And the reason I'm flagging it, I really enjoyed Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Jumanji. And I'm a big fan. Why are you just doing saying what I'm saying? I don't know. I thought it would be irritating. Okay. Is, it, is that because that's what I do? Not at all. Carry on. Fine. Okay. Uh, I'm choosing Hostiles because it didn't get seen very widely in cinemas. And I thought it was, it's got some really interesting stuff in it. And it is this brilliant musical score which uses the Yebahar. And when I say the Yebahar, I mean the Yebahar because there was only one when they made it. Thank you very much. And uh, also, do I do a, a, I'm going to do a, an old choice. Yeah, why don't you do it? Who are you talking to? I'm going to, to go. To I'm me. just checking. No, you're not listening. You're doing something else. I'm going to go for Suddenly Last Summer from 1959, which is a really, really twisted film. Oh, good. And, yeah, I, 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 I can't say much more about it because all I can say is this. I was recently making a, a programme about a particularly Awkward. extreme form. Stop doing the sensing. It, it, Difficult. I can't. Yeah. Emotional. Uh, no. Appalling. Okay. Cheap. Uh, sexy. Lusty. Think of the word ferox. I've never heard the word ferox before. No. Okay. Ferox oxide. No. That's ferox. Oxide. Okay. Suddenly, last summer, it's. It's. What? What is it? What? What is it? I can't, well, if I say the word. What? 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 You can't. Why? Sh- you say the word. What no, is it? I can't because if I do, then what's it, the word you can't say? <laughs> Act it out. Oh, okay. That. Well, why can't that? You, why can't? You? Because the point is, you don't know that that's what's happened. It's leading up to this revelation of that. Right. Okay. Okay. So there we go. Suddenly, last time you can watch it. It'll be your homework. Yeah. Everyone else goes. I've got no idea what you're talking about. No, that's fine. Watch the film. I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> well, because you already saw Piranha Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, and you've had enough of that sort of thing. Thank you very much. That's right. Thank you very much. And I'm never that hungry. Okay. So, uh, can we just say before we move on? Yes. That Hannah Talbot, who's been working on the show for uh, for like years, is that what she's been doing? I thought she was just hanging out for fun. No, no, no. Oh, obviously she does that, but apparently she's been paid. Anyway, <laughs> she's been a wonderful part of the team. So we, but she's moving on to Pastures New, run by Sarah Cox. Oh, really? She's moving on to a Sarah Cox pasture and she's leaving the Wittertainment pasture. Is that where you're going? Well, I mean, that's gratitude for you, isn't it? We've made her everything that she is and she's... Just off. Moving over there. Taking taking all the knowledge. Just because Coxie says, come over here, blimey. It's fun. Here we've got, you know, sofa, sofa you know, comfy chairs. Yeah, I haven't got comfy chairs got Comfy there, chairs, you know. know. Probably haven't got exploding desks. You wouldn't expect the comfy You'll miss all the banter. Yeah. And the size 14s. You won't get to see movies with her. Yeah. Feel yeah. Late night Please. weird stuff. Let's talk about Let's talk pop about music. And ghosts and mm. spooky things and late night music. 
<laughs> and special and I candles. Don't. There'll be candles <laughs> and joss sticks and all that weird nonsense. I just full wish... of nonsense. Yeah, full, full, full of, of nonsense. nonsense. Chock full of nonsense. But anyway, you've made. Your no, 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 but no. But we, but we wish you well. But good luck anyway. We thanks. wish you well. Yeah. Thank no, thanks for dropping in. It's great. Just remember. What are we going to do now? I have to have a new Hannah. I know that's impossible to think of, but we just go, or we just do it ourselves. Can we get like the the the, the Hitchcock cutout? What to do of what? Hannah, and then we can just pretend but she's still here. Well, it'll be it'll be like a, an emotional boy to, to to hang on to. There will be a, a a gap in our lives from next week. We're gonna have to just turn up in the middle of Sarah Cox's late night candle filled fest. Round the so bins. Remember us? Bin. Round the back of the building, messing anyway. with the bins. I can't do that voice. You do it better than I do. Thanks. Anyway, thanks, Hannah. See Robin for extra payment. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's in charge of all that uh, puppeteering. We're going to finish with some music, which is always a very nice thing. We had another email from uh, Ken O'Hara from Presswick. He was the guy who sent in our wassailing tune. Oh, yes. Uh, and he's at it again. Dear middle-aged skiffler, an older trendy man. Yep, I know which one I am. I've tried a couple of times to get this into your show and thought since you're discussing the code so regularly that I'd try again. You remember, remember my wassailing from Christmas time? This is more bluesy and features a harmonica just for Mark. Thank Hope you. you managed to get some airtime to play it. Was, does being on a podcast, that count as airtime? Probably does. Yeah. Anyway, regarding codes, now that we have special dog-friendly mums and babies screenings. What about code-breakers screenings? Can I say parents and baby screenings? Where they can crunch and pop and squeak and fart and talk and swipe and push and smell all they want. Anyway, that's probably good. I mean, that, that has been mentioned before. Yeah. You want to make a phone call, you want to go on Facebook, you want to eat cabbage and your Mexican food in there. Everyone else, thank you very much. Anyway, here's hoping for a chance you listen and like. Well, we haven't heard it, Ken, but let's assume that we like it. It's the Wittertainment Code of Conduct Blues. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mark, for coming in today. You're saying thank you to me? Yeah, thank you for coming in. Why are you thanking me? I'm, this is where I work. I know, but thanks for coming in anyway. Thanks to everyone. Thanks for coming back, Simon. What have you been doing this week? very much yeah anyway i love those birds weren't they great <laughs> they were great that was very nice here comes the wittertainment code of conduct blues as done by ken o'hara thanks very much indeed for listening here we go i got the bridge and wittertainment code of conduct blues i walked into the cinema the other night settled down in the darkness Nearly died fright, our crunching and the rush foot started filling the air. I cried, hey melon farmers, you just don't care. Some things you can do and some things you can't. Don't you know you could trigger a Kermodrat? They cried, what do you mean? So I had to explain, you're here for one thing. Are you not entertained? No rustling, no hobbies, no talking at all. No looking at the screens, except the one on the wall. No kicking the seats, keep your feet to yourself. And keep your shoes wrapped around them for everyone's help. Well, I thought I was finished at the end of my list. 
When in walked a family, mother, father, and kids, I just stood there staring, didn't know what to say. And not only that, but they were half an hour late to an 18-rated movie. You just don't want to look a double bill of The Exorcist and the Babadook. I got the preaching. I got the preaching. Yeah, that's why I'm teaching. Oh, that's why I'm preaching. I got the preaching with entertainment. No one does what's up, what's up, what's up like you, though, do they? But Kim was pretty close. Yeah, yeah, but he's better closer than I am. Shall we finish with one? Go on. Here, Mark. Here, Simon. What's up with your bad self? Yeah, you see, I can't do it. No, you can't. I don't know why. Feeble.